Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is the Q&A series, our very first Q&A episode. We'll anticipate doing a lot of these down the track. Coronavirus slowing down here in Australia. Helps my course to get people face-to-face to chat to about numerous different things. This won't always be well-known people. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll be sports people. Sometimes it'll be a local business owner who's done fantastic things. This one is a little bit of a different pace. It is involving a gentleman who started an amazing business here 30, 40 years ago in Melbourne, Australia. Funnily enough, in the very suburb I was born, Dandenong, working class suburb out in the southeast of of suburbs of Melbourne, 40, 45 minutes from the city. Unfortunately, it is to do with blatant corruption as deep as the eye can see to the depths of darkness. It has involved state government officials here in Victoria, so Victorian politicians, Dandong City Council and many councillors, health inspectors and the like, it has gone as far as involving Victoria Police. It is ongoing, but the story makes you want to put your head through a wall when you hear what has happened here. It's hard to talk to. Uh, you, you've, you've talk, you talk to these two gentlemen that I'm about to interview. There are numerous parts of this interview, which goes for two hours, might I add. It is a very deep story. It's a long story. There's a lot to it. And funnily enough, I got off air and they said there's even much more to get into, which we didn't have time for today, which hopefully we'll get them back for. They get emotional at times when talking about what has occurred, and you'll see within good reason why. But this is um, a story that every Australian needs to know about, every Victorian needs to know about, because it is absolutely disgusting what has occurred here. I'm, I'm absolutely shocked that this story has come to air. I'm, I'm even more shocked that it was allowed to come. I, I thought for sure a cover-up in the form of a settlement and a silencing would have occurred when it got to the tail end of this, this um, debacle for these gentlemen. It has been in the news the last couple of weeks. It still hasn't really been front page news. It hasn't picked up that much steam. It was on Sam Newman's podcast, as we'll mention later. You cannot be serious. That's where I heard it. And I um, reached out to this gentleman and said, look, I've got a small little forum here of, of different listeners than, than Sam Newman's podcast. The more people that can hear this story, the better. That is the main reason why I got it on. And on the flip side, it's actually a good story starting off where we learn about Australian entrepreneur, a uh, businessman who built a fantastic business that should be on the world forefront and, and, and isn't because of, because of a council and because of, because of a state government. You know, this, this should have been a company, a brand that we all could have been proud of coming from my, my own home, home suburb, could have done big things around the world as we'll hear. And they've got some patented technology they had. It all got shut down because of um, corruption is the easiest way to say it. Now, bear with us because it, it does go for a while, but it, it's a very, very cool story at the start with the way they build their business and then it takes a lot of turns for the worst involving some very familiar characters that we see on TV to this day here in Victoria, some of them that we saw doing press conferences on a daily basis. But I, I hope you enjoy this Q&A. We have two special guests from iCook, and here is that introduction. Enjoy. All right, welcome to Rogue Bogues. I have two special guests um, in a mind-boggling story that I have followed, um, mainly thanks to Sam Newman's podcast and it's it's unbelievable just talking to them off off air. The stories that they have, I mean, this is this is beyond a book or an encyclopedia of 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 an absolute shit show. And yeah, let's get into it. So, welcome to Ian and Ben Cook. Thank um, you, father and son. I am a, a great Aussie business, or what was a great <laughs> Aussie business. Um, we'll get into 
all the problems soon, but I mean, I just want to know, tell us about yourselves. I mean, I've heard your story on, on numerous podcasts and in the media as much as, as much negativity as, as we can read about you guys and what you've been involved with, which is horrendous. But I just want to know your story before we get into the nitty gritty. Where, where did you grow up? I assume you didn't go to school and say, I want to run a, a food business. <laughs> so tell us that story. Okay. Well, I, I grew up from age 12, 13 in Burwood. Um, we, I was born in Sydney and uh, we moved to Melbourne when I was literally just becoming a teenager. Dad's, uh, my father worked in the soap industry as a scientist. Um, and then, yeah, just pretty normal childhood. Uh, went to Burwood High, then went to Melbourne High. Um, left school and became an apprentice, apprentice chef. Um, had always wanted to work for myself. So, you know, uh, at age 25, an opportunity came to, to start a contract. And literally, we did that. Um, we started this contract. Um, it was what we used to be known as A&A &A House. We did the commercial catering for them. One thing led to another. That that business developed. Um, we started investing into uh, literally food manufacturing initially for ourselves. And then we started picking up contracts for aged care and, um, and Meals on Wheels. And there were a number of councils that weren't getting what they wanted. Um, we felt we could... Um, fill that gap, which we, um, we, we pretty much did. And that's, that's sort of how, in a brief summary way, how we got into it um, and got into this um, industry. Industry. I think um, some people say it was meant to happen because there's <laughs> often jokes made about my name. Yeah. First, yes. No doubt. I cook for everyone listening. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Dean Cook, I cook. Yep. To top it off even further, Dad's middle name is William, so it's I will cook. Oh, even better. <laughs> That's it. So people ask, did your mother know something? And she says, no, she didn't. But, hey, uh, some things were meant to be. Loved food, loved working with food, really enjoyed it. And we found that um, in this aged care sector that we could make a difference. And we spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort developing particularly dietary-type meals, meals for people who often dine, if you like, without dignity. They're just given slop on a plate. Mm -hmm. So we went about making sure that people who are on mince diets or people who are on puree diets could have meals that looked like real meals um, and yet still met the requirements they needed. In fact, if you go back to when we were closed, the ABC were running pictures of our meals and the pictures they were using off the web website were actually purees and people didn't realise. They thought they were just looking at roast beef. Oh, wow. But it was really our puree range is what they'd pulled down. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So uh, when, when you were 25, it was, it was iCook from then or did that uh, launch further down? No, no. Uh, so we were, we were iCook Catering Service in okay. those days um, and then iCook Catering Service. That, that company is like a parent company, still exists. When we, when we specialised in... Um, some of the work we were doing in aged care and Meals on Wheels and that and that market. Yep. Then we originally had a, we originally named the, that company I Cook Catering Aged Care Services, but it ended up being too much of a mouthful. So then it then then we shortened it just to I Cook Foods. It was, you know, we, by then you're talking about you know, the internet had started, websites were necessary, and all those sorts of things. So it was just a a way of shortening and making it easier for people to remember. Most people knew us just as I Cook. So the company's been. Essentially, from day dot is what, what year were you in as of last year or this year total? Yes, yeah, what, yeah. What 85. 85. 85. Yeah, That's when yeah we started in 19. Yeah, because I mean, most people think, oh, maybe it's just five, 10 years old with all the media attention. No, no, no. The valuation, I mean, just, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a five or 10 year business that someone's built. No. This is, 
yeah, it's unbelievable. A lot's I mean, worked. Yeah, 30, 40 years of, of hard work gone on to 40 years almost. Um, that's, you know, that's unbelievable. And then uh, I guess talk about how your business grew. How did you, at what point did you start, you know, getting to double digit employees? Did you start out with a few people? Did you start out with- Started uh, out as mum and mum and dad. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it did. Yeah, yeah. They just started out with myself and my wife, Dina. Uh, my my mother-in-law used to come in and help. My father-in-law helped. Um, and my father-in-law actually has a background in food as well, in food and hospitality. Uh, he trained in England during the war years um, as a chef and then came out. He actually originally, when they decided to come to Australia, he was a major uh, in the Australian Army because he ran ASCO, the Armed Services Catering Organisation. Yep. So he had quite a good background. And when we, did, when Dina and I, that's my wife and I, decided to take, do the first contract and go out on our own, um, he he was there with a lot of knowledge and help. And so, yeah, it was great. But so that that's how it all started. And slowly it grew. We did a number of contracts. So we had an employees growing f reasonably rapidly. And then the contract market that we were in was changing and we were doing more manufacturing for our own contracts and our own sites. So that's why we, we had an original factory in Dandenong North, which was about 500 square metres. And then I guess when we were there, we were employing sort of 18 to 20 people and that's going back, say, 10, 15 years. And then we, we actually found a new premises because we could see the market we were in was starting to grow and we could see there was a need for someone to come in and do good dietary meals, good for the elderly. So yep. meals that took into account what they needed, if you like, from a health point of view, but instead of diluting and adding proteins back and this and that, using natural food and processing that and turning that into something that they would enjoy and appreciate. So it was, it's quite a long road that, but we went through it. We actually took a big hit in 2009, because in 2009, Anthony Albanese gave $9 million to a bunch of councils. Um, the then Brumby government gave $6 million to the health department, who, uh, which at the time was um, Daniel Andrews, was mm -hmm. the minister. They gave him six, councils went and borrowed, I think two and a half, 2.7 of their own, plus another $8 million, sorry, Seven. they put two and a half of their own in and then they borrowed $8 million, $8.5 million from the ANZ Bank. All of that money was used to fund Community Chef and Community Chef literally went out and wiped out the market that we were in. We lost half of our contracts, a company called ISS in Kensington at the time. So ISS is a huge international company. They, they had a facility in Kensington that was doing the same sort of work as us. They lost three quarters of their contracts. It literally sent them broke. 80 people lost their jobs and we lost literally half. I mean, we were down to a really low level and we were actually thinking, this is it. You know, mm. we've taken a wrong turn. We're not going to have the mon money to go and do what we wanted to do. Anyway, we decided to fight on. We did. And between 2009, 2015, we built the business back up. Uh, we got up to um, 41 plus subcontractors, 45 jobs. We were cruising quite nicely then. The revenues that had been wiped out were back up to turning over $7 million plus. And, you know, uh, we were doing 50,000 meal components a week out of the facility. Uh, we were doing number of hospitals plus the aged care contracts. We were the largest private provider in that market. So it was, it was, it was doing very well. It was growing well. When we got 
board papers um, of Community Chef, we found that if you have a look at what their expectation had been, so the CEO reporting to the board, in, from 2015-16 through to 18, so a two-and-a-half, three-year period, we took over $3.4 million in contracts we won that they expected to win. Yep. So, Which is great. So, so at the latest point, we'll, we'll get to Community Chef in a second, sure. but at the latest point, you had roughly 50 employees, 60? Yeah, 45. 45. 45 are directly on the books, but then if you look at people that we part employed, et cetera, yeah, the number gets higher. And from what I've read, this was local community members, some people that had special needs. There yep. was, you know, it was a not only a family business, but a community business that was helping the community and people that had worked there for, you know, a long time, 10, 15, 20, 30 years that um, the ramifications of everything that we'll talk about later on didn't only affect, you know, father and yeah. son or a family business, it's it's caused a detrimental it, effect to many families in the Dandenong area, which is a special place in my heart. I grew up in Endeavour Hills and Dandenong. Yeah. My father, you know, we lived on Brady Road for a number of years. So huh. that's why this story was like, hang on a second, there's a, a great business from Dandenong. Why is this happening? You know, so that's why. But yeah, I mean, you, you guys really helped the lo local community, right? When, when you look at the effect of what happened to our business, it's not just Ian Cook and I Cook Foods. It's Ian Cook, his family, his staff, and our staff were, were simply extended family. When, when people had things go wrong in life, they were able to come and talk to Ian directly, the head of the business, and sit there and say, Ian, uh, uh, look, I know I'm short on sick leave, um, but I've really had this happen. And dad would compassionately sit there and say, okay, I understand this, this isn't nice. This isn't, this is something hard you're going through. Let's work to, to get the outcome you need whilst making sure we still get the production that we need to occur. And so we would always try and find that balance. So it doesn't just affect our family. It, it affects the extended family of our staff. Then you take that toll and say it extends further to their family because I'm his son. My staff have husbands and kids who watch their, their parents who've been there in a job for 15 years suddenly don't have anything, don't have that revenue stream coming into the family home. Then you've got the suppliers who've, you know, I can think of a supplier who he had one little business going round and we were probably de dealing $7,000 a week to him as his revenue stream. You go and take that away from him and his family. It's a ripple effect that goes far, far more reaching than just I cook foods. Yeah, and most people would look at, read the article and be like, oh, you, you know, two businessmen, business worth 20, 30 million, they'll be okay, which they won't. But it's like you said, that snowball effect of the people that don't have a voice, the voiceless, that's the, the hardest thing, especially the, a working class suburb like Dandenong. Like we're not talking about a, an affluent suburb of, of locals that can just go and find another job on the whim. And like Correct. you said, some people probably – you know, my, my father dropped out of school in year nine, year 10. So he was a factory worker for a number of years. It's a lot of people like that. It's it's um, immigrants and refugees. It's at-risk people, you know, people that have had issues in their life. And that's that's the most glaring thing I read with this outside of what we'll talk about later is I think the effects of, of the community and, and, and the people you've tried to help. Mm. I think also you have to look at the individuals as well. We had um, um, back in before we left the old factory – I had our what we call our belt supervisor who helps do the picking of the meals for Meals on Wheels. And uh, she came to me, her name was Sharon. She said, you know, um, we need another girl because one of, the, one of the girls had left. And she said, um, would it be all right if I brought my sister in? I said, yeah, that's fine. You're, she was a good worker. No reason why her sister wouldn't be okay. And she said, I need to tell you something, and that is that my sister Ingrid is deaf. She's profoundly deaf. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I have no problem with that. Um 
as long as you're able to communicate and as long as it's safe for Ingrid, I'm happy. And she said, yep, no, no, I think I can make that. So I said, okay, that's the deal. No problem. Anyway, that was, if you take to the day when we were closed, that was 13 years earlier. And Ingrid ended up being just a wonderful employee. She was just, she was terrific. Um, when we were closed, Ingrid couldn't get another job. Ingrid earned, we never got a subsidy. We could have put her through and, you know, you can get subsidies for all sorts of things. Ingrid did a full person's job. And why would I discriminate against her? There was no reason. Ingrid um, was, was a wonderful employee who worked really hard. Ingrid earned in excess of $1,200 a week with us. Yep. She was with her mum and dad. She was- um, Supporting the family. Supporting the family. Yeah. Yep. yep. And- you know, that's one story, but that's one story outside of our family directly, and mm. it is so sad. It is, you know. Uh, Sharon Sharon actually reached out to us and, you know, wanted to know how we were doing, and we subsequently said, you know, how's Ingrid, how yourself, etc. And, you know, Sharon broke down a bit and said, she's... <laughs> yeah, yes, it does. She sits yes. in her room yeah. and she cries because she's lost the job that she enjoyed for 13 years. And she wouldn't understand, you know. No, like, she, she, didn't, she didn't know, you know, why did this happen? I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. And she knows that everyone had their job and, and we didn't do anything wrong, yet she's the one that's sitting in her room crying. And that's, that's the thing with local businesses for a lot of people that are um, at risk or special needs. I, I'm, I'm, I think they work harder than... Um, regular Joes at times because I think they're so thankful about someone giving them an opportunity and I've worked with special needs people before and that's the vibe I got. It's just they're so thankful they don't want to let you down but then when the opposite happens like what you're talking about, it comes down even harder on them than, than it would a regular Joe because they felt a part of part of the business, a part of the community and, and that's what that's what I'm understanding with, with this. They can't comprehend – well, not that they can't comprehend it. They find it far more difficult to comprehend what's happened and well, they, they think it's their fault. And they think it's, yeah, exactly, they yeah. think it's their fault and they don't want to let you down. And, and I wholeheartedly agree when, when we hired staff that, you know, did have a disability in, in all forms and different variants of a disability, you just said to yourself, well, okay, that's your disability, that's fine. But there's plenty of other things you can do just like every other, as you say, regular Joe. And that they, they strive to want to achieve for you yeah. because they have that opportunity. You got to forget the diss and just look at the ability. Hundred percent. Yeah. They, yeah they exactly. If someone's working hard for you, like yeah. I don't care about race, sex, disability. If you're doing the job well, yep. I don't. I don't Done. care about everything else. That, that's Correct. how it should be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Funnily enough, in our business, apart from me, your CEO, the senior management team of our business was half women. Yeah. I mean, our, our industry works a lot of women, and um, they were the best. They and it wasn't. A, it wasn't a case of you actually strategically doing that. No. It's just, I assume you ran into best it. Best person exactly, for the job. 100%. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I'm a big advocate for, you know, for that and, and hiring the best at, at all times. But, I mean, moving on, there wasn't a lot of media attention um, about this until recently. There was a little bit, I did some research, there was some stuff on ABC News, but it was, you had to scroll down the page and really look for it. Um, there wasn't much on in the form of, of print media, uh, maybe one or two articles. I think Dandong Journal had something. I ran into it of all places, like I said, on on um, You Cannot Be Serious and Newman's podcast when you gentlemen were on there with with the, the detectives. Yep. And I'm like, why why have I not heard about this? This this not only should it be front page news, it should be this, I want a weekly update of this. Like yep. it's it's that oh man, it's just that dirty that you just you just like I can't fathom. So then it, then I ask questions, conspiracy theorists are like, okay. 
Are they with the media? Yeah, probably are, right? There, there's some media that probably don't want to write about this for certain reasons and you get all that with the way politics works. But I mean, with, with the level level of corruption that is clearly or allegedly clearly <laughs> gone on that you can, you can talk about, it's just, I mean, it, it just boggles my mind. But Community Chef, when, when did you first hear about Community Chef? When did you first hear about them potentially becoming competitors? Uh, okay, so that, that goes back to uh, from memory about two thousand, the end of two thousand and eight into two thousand and nine. Um, we we actually spoke to a number of our councils when it was first mooted because we thought, look, this is a risk if if government's going to nationalise effectively or, or within the state this market. Anyway, we went to a number of our councils, a couple of the bigger ones, and um, we were assured by all except one that they weren't going to entertain going into it. Um, and that was 2009. We were still quite concerned. The other thing that had happened too is prior to that, we'd contacted Danny on council because we knew they were they were doing their own meals on wheels service and producing their own meals, um, as a number of councils have done that in the past. But the kitchen was really old, and we'd been told that, and that it was looking to either it had to be redeveloped, or they were going to have to outsource. We contacted Dandenong Council and said, look, we're, we are a business in Dandenong. We specialise in this area. We've you know, we got um, great reviews from other councils. We'd really like when the time comes to tender for the business. Yep. And they, uh, I was told at the time, yep, yep, that's okay. When the tender comes out, we, look, we can't talk to you before that. That wouldn't be appropriate. But as soon as the tender's out, um, we'll let you know or you'll see it advertised. I said, okay. Anyway, that never happened. <laughs> They went into Community Chef. And when I when I went back to them and said, hey, what's going on? They said, oh, well, you know what? We've decided to go into this organisation and we have an exemption from going to tender, so that's it. When we realised that was happening uh, and we realised where the money had come from, we actually wrote to Anthony Albanese and said, if you, if you give this money and this goes ahead, and we stepped through. And it, that's ended up being quite a prophetic letter. It's quite a long letter too, by the way. Um, but it steps through the things that will happen. You'll skew the market. You'll, you will, um, you'll put businesses that are currently in business out of business. Bang, bang, bang. We got a letter back from Anthony Albanese that said uh, that he would make sure that, that um, he'd get onto people at Community Chef and Community Chef would walk, work with us to make sure those things didn't occur. Guess how many times we got contacted? Yeah, zero, <laughs> zero, zero. Were they were they were they formed by government solely, or was it an existing business? No, was there existing CEO? No. Just a seed, basically, from government. Yep, basically what happened. Well, you say basically what happened was Hobson's Bay City Council needed a new kitchen. They, like Danny Nong, were running their own. This was their way of getting a new kitchen. Initially, they were going to be just a regional kitchen in the west and just a few western councils. And then it got hijacked by a Labor Party heavyweight, um, uh, what's his name, Hayden Raysmith. He effectively hijacked the project um, and they got all this big funding and it became a sort of all of state project. So Hobson's Bay effectively moved all of their business into Community Chef to start and then they brought and then because of the contacts and if you actually step through it i think the most of the councils that uh went into it were labor councils yeah so it made, it made sense for them yeah. to you know part of their own bread right yeah. um it, you, you know of course they won many council con contracts well, i'll say you say one and i think this is an important point to to take in they didn't win anything really is they had they 
they did go they into tenders and they yeah. did get they did in inverted commas Proof, win. Yeah. But in, in in reality, they didn't have to. They had an exemption to go to tender. So yeah. they were able to walk up and say, Hey Andrew, you know, you could just come and join with us as community chef. Yeah. Can I can I make a point about that too? We we all we ever did was say, hey, we want a fair and level playing field, which we never got. One of the things that we found out and we got, and I have a letter from a guy called James Lantry, who was the then chief of staff for the minister. And now this is the minister for local government, which was when the Libs were in power for that three years. I've forgotten her name. She was Jeanette from- Jeanette Powell. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. From, from Shepparton. So we met with her and we said, hey- this is what's happening and it's, you know, it's damaging our business, et cetera. Um, James Lantry wrote to me and he said that Community Chef had an exemption under Section 186 of the Local Government Act from having to go to tender. The, but there were conditions. So the condition they got it on was that Community Chef could only trade with members and only local councils could be members. In other words, so any council that wanted to buy a parcel of shares would become a member. Yep. And Community Chef would only trade within that tight group, which is why they didn't have to go to tender. Right. The reality is Community Chef ended up trading with hospitals, ended up trading with private hospitals. Aged care. It, aged care. It was going everywhere it could to and try. And there were 17 councils signed up at one point, wasn't there? Yeah, at one point, there was 21. 21, yes. Mm. I mean, even if they didn't go to, to the private market, they own most of the market yep. just through council, you know. Yeah. Council. How do you have 21 councils? You're also branching out into contract manufacturing and a number of other, you know, areas of aged care, private hospitals, et cetera and still run at a loss every single year. Because the government entity. I mean, we, we, we all know, you know, they couldn't run a ch- chook raffle. Yeah. And then if they can run um, a chook raffle, they're running it at 5x of a, of a local entrepreneur. We, we, we know that. Whether it's left, whether it's right, whether it's labor, we, we know yeah, governments that's... are not, not efficient at running it. Look at Vic Roads. I mean, yeah. try getting something done there. Try getting something. Just go get your license done. It's, it's taking you weeks. So, we, we know. And, and, and that, that ties into- Sorry, Daniel Andrews was health minister at that point, right? Yep. Yeah. Was was Brett Sutton involved at that point? No, he was no. a junior burger at that point, yeah. right? He was still yeah. down below trying to get up to where he is now. So they won the they won contracts for obvious reasons. You lost you lost business. Yep. At a, you said about fifty percent at that point. Yeah, it cut us in half at that point. Cut you in half. But the beauty of this what is what we just said. They all, from what I read, they all came back because you actually had you actually had people in in some of the nursing homes complaining about the food quality. Yeah. In hospitals, complaining about the food food quality, yep. and some of your old contracts then came back. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it it just goes to show that this was a, an A class business, and when you know government backing would scare anybody uh, if you have a competitor with government backing, because it seems like the well never runs dry, yeah, and they money. can make endless mistakes and up and down. But I think that's a huge pat on the back to you guys. I mean, you you had people come back, um, and, and councils and hospitals were, were actually forced by the people. To come back, I mean, that must have been a great feeling for you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I know. In, in particular, the one that was really good was um, a big contract we had was uh, Monash City Council, and so Monash City Council, when they when they left us and went in, they don't, they only signed up for a three year, which was the minimum contract period they could have with Community Chef. So they went in for that, and um, for what we understood, they were probably then going to stay in there. Um, Towards the end of the three years, they did a full analysis of value, quality, etc. It's in fact, I think it's still on their website if you go looking for it. And that showed that by coming out of Community Chef and coming back to us, they would improve their quality. 
their their customers would be much their clients would be much happier and they were going to save over a contract period in excess of six hundred thousand dollars which is that's huge yeah and it's like i said government and you think but but it just showed us at that point in time it showed the difference between us and community chef. Well, and the ratepayer of Monash should be happy with uh, with their council at that time for looking to, to save money. Yeah, which doesn't mm. happen often. It doesn't happen often. You so know, the rates the rates have not never gone down in the last thirty <laughs> years for any council. I think. <laughs> well, they they had to spend a lot to to go into community chef, and they lost a lot of that money too. So, how how close were you really of, of closing the doors? Uh, in two thousand, in that two thousand nine ten period when we lost those contracts, yeah, it was a toss up. I was, I literally would sit in my office and think, do I sell my assets now and at least have a nice wad of cash to retire, retire and yeah. go away, lick my wounds, or do we double down, f- double down, move ahead and see if we can build something else? We'd already started to dabble in some other technology and that sort of thing, and Ben, while well, he was a lot. Um, a lot younger than you know <laughs> that many years ago, um, he decided he re- he wanted to work in the family business with me. So I thought, well, if we're going if I'm going to leave something, it may as in well be penny, in for a pound. Was that the motivation to keep going, having yes, your, your family yeah, and son yeah, involved? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. I yeah. mean, it's it's a it's a great story of you know, it's almost a Hollywood movie in a way of, of of the ups and downs. And I mean, beyond that was once this all happened, you still had no communication with Community Chef, correct? Nothing at all. Uh, uh, so in the middle, um, I'm thinking it would have been- 2017. Yeah, about 2017, yeah. yeah. We, I rang the CEO of Community Chef because what was happening was there was going to be a change in the f- way the federal government funded deli- what they call the Delivered Meals Program through HAC. Now, Victoria was quite unique. Victoria had a much higher standard with people like us in the market doing delivered meals. Um, compared to the other states, a lot of the other states were just doing a very basic. Well, I can only imagine what some of the other nursing homes and, <laughs> and hospitals are getting. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, it, that's right. So it was different, um, and because the funding was going to go from the federal government instead of through the state, it was then going to go direct to the consumer. There were changes that would happen. Now those those changes are fine, but you don't want to damage a, 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 what was already a fragile market by ripping it apart in one hit. So I contacted the then CEO of Community Chef and said, look, you know, would you um, would you like to get together um, and let's talk because maybe we can talk to government as a united voice yep. um, so that we manage through these changes. Anyway, uh, he said, yeah, all right. So he came out to our premises and sat down with us. He, he brought his chairman with him at the time and- First of all, the chairman spent almost the whole time in the meeting justifying the initial startup and justifying the existence of Community Chef against someone like us. And I said, you know what? You and I could talk for hours. We're never going to agree. So let's just park that and talk about the things that we can agree on forward, and the yeah. things that may help you know, stabilize this market, make sure that we, you know, we're both surviving in it. So the CEO said, yes, yes, he was going to, that he would, and he would go back and talk about it and and they would see what they could do. They, he recognized there were a number of things we did that were better than the way they did it, but that was it. They never heard from them again. Yeah. Can imagine, yeah, and I, I thought they probably would just go quiet and wouldn't wouldn't yeah. be involved with you, which 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 is the case. The fact they even took a meeting is surprising to me. Once you started taking back the business after two thousand and ten, so you know you battled and and then you had these contracts then returning. Yeah, business was going back up. Did you have any clue what was ahead? No. <laughs> if I, <laughs> okay, and you know what? Um, there's a few things that happened that you know you know when you see something in hindsight. You can see the progression of something. Yeah, once but, it's too late. But, but it's too late by then. <laughs> that's right. I 
um, I think now, um, as Ben was telling you before we started, that the local member for us is Gabrielle Williams, who is now the Minister for Women and- Women and Domestic Violence. Domestic Violence, et cetera. So she had seen our product and what we did, which is part of our patented technology associated with our, our puree meals, and she was blown away by it. She thought it was fabulous. So she got up in Parliament, you can still pick it up on Hansard, and she waxed lyrical about how incredibly clever we were and how in front of the game we were, et cetera, et cetera. And she asked for the Minister for Innovation to come and see us. Now, that was, at the time, Daladarkas. Now, and Daladarkas did. Yeah. She'd organised it. He comes out and sees us. So Daladarkas came and saw us. He was blown away. He, he, had, a, he had a full meal, a pureed meal of um, pasta bolognese while he was there, and he couldn't believe it. He said, this stuff... Tastes fabulous and it looks like, but it's a puree. So, you know, he was he was right on board. I wanted to know if there was anything he could do to help us to make sure that we did become the world uh, the world best in this. And we said, yes, we'd like to stay in touch. Shortly after that, he left. He left politics. One thing that they organised no, through he him- was, I believe from memory, he was removed from cabinet and there was a whole reshuffle by the Andrews government to have more women represented in cabinet. And one of those uh, new, new cabinet ministers- was actually Gabrielle Williams who was elevated into cabinet. Yeah, so we'll yes, draw from I, that what you will. Yeah, well, Daladarkas is removed, and Gabrielle Williams is put in, and then Gabrielle Williams went quiet on I Cook Foods ever forevermore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's it. It was it's became poison for her. I'm guessing. In the meantime, Daladarkas and uh, sorry, and Gabrielle Williams, what they organised for an organise they organised for an organisation called HPV to come and see us. Now, HPV is Health Purchasing Victoria. If um, when Health Purchasing Victoria release a contract or a tender, all that all the local all the publicly funded hospitals have to use it. Okay, we got a court. So first of all, we get the three. Does most- it, how, do, you, do you understand how that works? So if say Heinz um, tomato sachets, yep. right? If you are in a hospital, um, say you know. The Mulgrave Private Public Hospital, sorry, they they need to get tomato sachets in for for stock. They must go to the HPV list and see. Okay, tomato sachets. We have to order in Heinz tomato sachets. Is it just one, or is there a couple different? No, 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 no. They will be someone will have won the tender for that product, and that's it. Yeah. So if you had um, if you had Andrew Bogart's baked beans, right, and uh, you you tendered a price for public hospitals, yeah, and they said, great, yep, you're it. That's it. They have to buy your product through whoever you distribute through. Good if you can get it. Yep. Good no, if no, you that's can right. get it. <laughs> to give you an idea, to have the three most senior people from purchasing, from Health Purchasing Victoria on the purchasing side to come and visit you personally, you know, there are businesses would give their eye teeth for this to happen. Yeah. And they came in. They came in and they sat down with us. Um, the head of their food, like the food tech guy that came with them, guy called um, Matthews, he sat there, Alfred Matthews, Alfred Matthews sat in that meeting and said, what we had done with our diet meals was the greatest improvement and change in 30 years, all right, which was lovely, you know, very nice for a guy of that seniority to come in and say that to us. Amanda, who was the head of purchasing, I've forgotten her surname. Amanda Miller. Amanda Miller. She she contacted my contracts manager, Alex, and she, she rang him. Just towards the end of 2018, we could get his phone records to show you where, but uh, what she said was, we have decided for probity and so that this is all above board and fair, um, we are going to run a tender 
the tender will be on the specification you've shown us because that is what we want for the public hospital system. Tender never ran. That tender would have wiped out community chef ever doing whatever they thought they would do. All of a sudden, Gabrielle Williams has spoken in Parliament. All of a sudden, community chef has found out what's going on. So, you know what? I'm prior to all of this, I wasn't a conspiracy theorist. But then again, I never believed that a health inspector would come and drop a slug in my premises. Which, which we'll get to, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just, it is it is mind-boggling. It is it clearly, you know, this is just where I guess the smoke started. We're not yep. even at the fire yet. Yep. And I, yeah, the community chef thing is an interesting one. But not having any clue what was ahead, talk to me once the Listeria debacle started, which was 2019, I believe. The lead up to that, when you got the first, give me the first phone call that you got. So you were you were you were providing meals to which hospital was it? Uh, Knox Private. Knox Private. It was so, the, yeah, the HealthScope group is who we provided quite, to. We were supplying those. about a thousand beds. Yep. Okay. So the the first phone call you got. So the first phone call we got actually Ben took it. We were doing a um, we were actually meeting with uh, a no no uh, no. no, no pushback the, the first the, no no the first one is on the first first of february is when the uh, oh, former yeah. environmental health officer kim rogerson from city of dandenong arrived on the first of february 2019 to take samples so the uh, the elderly lady was uh, was in hospital and uh notification had come from the department of health and human services to the city of dandenong to come and do uh sampling of our facility uh, and so Kim Rogerson ap appeared on the 1st of February 2019. Mm. She took, uh, what was it, 11, um, 11 environmental swabs. swab samples, um, which all returned a negative result for listeria and she took a further 16-odd uh, odd, uh, food, food samples, correct. And from there, we didn't hear anything from Kim and we ended up onto the 18th, which is when- That's true. The, the, the one thing that happened in between that though is when, when they come in and do sampling because there's been a hit for Listeria has shown up, um, then obviously we're concerned because Listeria is common. It's everywhere, yeah. but you don't want it in a facility and you don't want it recurring. Nine times out of 10, it'll come in with something. And so it'll come in on a product you've bought. So on lettuces, it's often in ground vegetables, lettuces, who grow on the ground and, you know, rock melons, there was a big problem, carrots can have it, yep. whatever. Rogerson, who was our health inspector at the time and used to deal with either Ben or or Michael, our other food safety supervisor, she literally told us, hey, don't worry about it, guys. I've spoken to the department. They have no idea what this woman has eaten. All that happened was the daughter said she thinks that she likes sandwiches. Right. Now, as it turns out, the mother doesn't like corned beef sandwiches. And we know that now, but that's what happened then. So while you're concerned, you want to do all the right things, whenever there's something like this and they happen, not all the time, but they do happen at different intervals, we um, we work with whoever our environmental health officer is, do everything we can. And usually what we'll do is, okay, there's been listeria, even if it's been bought in on something, we'll do a chemical fogging, which means the place gets sealed up that night and it gets blasted with chlorine gas. Picture, picture hazmat suits. Literally. And they seal up the doors. They walk in with a chlorine fog and fog the whole facility. So it, it, it sterilizes the whole 
everything inside of the facility. Is, do you have to get rid of food as well at that point, pretty much, and start no. fresh? Or well, no, every, everything's sealed in the cool rooms. This is in 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 okay. all the packing areas, the you know the kitchen itself, the the dishwashing room, um, all all of those areas, not sprayed onto food. But also the fact that if they if they don't know where the, you said the listeria can also mm. come in on produce yep. coming in, mm. would then would you know when your closure happened or before? Would they so if then- you're concerned about any product that you think. It, it's up to our choice if we want to have open product that we think we're concerned about. We can destroy that, yep. but they can't direct us to destroy okay. food, which they did, which was also unlawful. Yeah, $700,000 worth. Yep, which was 10 point- Was that 10.4 was 10, ton? 10.38 ton, that's correct. <laughs> which you ended up trying- Did you end up donating? I read you tried to- No, destroy it. No, that, that part we had to do not- You weren't even legally no. allowed to give to charity or a local-, local No, we had to destroy that. So. What Ben says is right. The other thing too is when that happens, what you do is you do testing. So you take samples of product, which is what Rogerson did, and it goes off and it gets tested by a lab. So if it's come in on a product, then it shows up in those products that you come in and then you say, okay, we have a problem with this product. Let's have a look at that. So you do that. Um, That's exactly the process that was going on. That's the process that should have gone on. Um, All the things you're talking about, like the destruction of all that food and everything else, there was no testing. There was just nothing. And remember, there is legislated standards of levels. Everything has bacteria in it. If you tested a soft cheese for bacteria, it's going to come up with millions. 100%. I mean, what is your cult? It's Mm. a bottle of bacteria. So there's good bacteria and there's bad bacteria. Okay, if you think you've got a bad one, then you test those products, you isolate them. If they've come from another supplier, you go back to the supplier and say, hey, this What's is going on? Yeah. yeah. You yeah, don't go in and just say, all of your stock, yeah, put it in the bin. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like you know, lighting the whole forest on fire to burn one little area off. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. But so I guess then talk about the 19th. The, no, no. The, the, so then the 18th, um, 18th. Uh, 18th is uh, when Elizabeth Garlic uh, entered our facility. Now, uh, she isn't wearing a body camera on that day. And if you go to the parliamentary inquiry that is subsequently held in 2020, she states that they wear body cameras for safety. Well, one would assume that on the first day that a single inspector uh, attends a new facility, if you're doing it for safety, you would wear your body camera on that day. Which you have requested, I read through numerous times. Yeah, that, yeah we, we've, we've, we're currently fighting that in VCAT because they still don't want to release the, uh, the footage that Elizabeth Garlic edited out. And we'll get back to that. Yep, subsequently. Okay. Yep. Um, so, uh, she attends on the 18th. Um, Dad and I aren't uh, currently there. Uh, Michael Cook, my uncle, Dad's younger brother, who's also a food safety supervisor, um, escorts garlic uh, around the, the site. Um, and it's during that visit that she takes, I think it was over, over 750 photos in the course of two hours, give or take, say, 15 minutes on the site. Was she shadowed the whole time? She was shadowed yeah. the whole time. Yep. And, uh, and during that, she takes an abundance of photos, um, which we now know is how she works. She doesn't She didn't caution us. She didn't question. She simply just walked around and said, okay, photo, photo, photo. And then later on, uh, she used those photos to build her statement and just created a narrative that she wanted to create. And that's why she's, you know, we we allege that she has perjured herself throughout the the statement that she issued uh, for the prosecution in the Dandenong courts. Um, There's countless um, inaccuracies that she has falsified. you know, there's examples of a, of a sponge being dropped on the floor that she she states happened. Well, A, she can't be corroborated because she didn't wear a body camera. 
We just have to take her word for it. She takes a photo of a sponge that wasn't in the area that she alleges where the sponge was dropped. And we know this because on our CCTV, we can see yeah, the sponge. Yeah, you've got cameras in there. That's, we, that's we, the funniest part of all. We, we, get, we can see the sponge gets dropped by one of our workers. Now, he, he notices he drops the sponge, picks the sponge back up, and where Garlic alleges that uh, he, continued. He, he continued to clean, he walks off, he puts it in a bin, he gets a new sponge. How do you know it's a new sponge? Because you put a new sponge in a bucket to soften it and get water on it and you watch him put it in the bucket and continue cleaning. So it's things like that all the way through her 47-page statement that she makes falsifications based off her photos and that was the purpose of of the of the Monday the 18th visit. She wrote 37 corrective actions in what's called a, a Section 19.1 notice. Well, technically it should be a Section 19.2 notice. So uh, on the... Tuesday, the 19th of February, February Gaelic re-attended the site um, and she had another EHO, Gareth Littlehales, in attendance with her. She issued to me a food order, which was uh, titled a, a Section 19.1.2 notice. Now, to give you clarity around that, the Food Act states that, um, and we'll use this as an example, that I'm a rel- I'm a, uh, an authorised officer under the Food Act and you, Andrew, are a relevant authority. The CEO. The CEO, yep. for, for example. I have to attend the premises. I read through the, uh, the the food safety program. I look out into the facility and I note that, you know, there's a, um, a rat running across the, the kitchen bench. I write that up and I say to you, you can't have rats running around. You need to fix this. Um, I go back to you and say, Andrew, as relevant authority, here's my report of the the site I've just visited. Can you please check it off? Um, And if you're satisfied, I want to issue a 19.2 to make sure that they clean themselves up as a facility. Yep. Do you understand? Yep. Cool. What Garlic did was she wrote a 19.1 and 2. So she wrote a report and and corroborated (laughs) herself. Judge, jury and executioner. (laughs) Good if you can do it, right? Well, can that's I- it. You can't. And she uh, and she she subsequently did, uh, and then that's where uh, that's where she's come undone further. And with part of our complaint to the police was was the matters like the sponge, the nineteen one two. Yeah, I'd also like to point out when it, when it first happened, and Michael came to me after he loaded down the video footage from our cameras. He said to me, even before that, he said to me, Ian, she put that slug there. I said, how do you know? And he said, because she bent down and she was looking at the equivalent of a couple of fool's cap pages in area. Right? Yep. You're talking area A4. that big. Okay, four A4. A4 pieces of paper. Yep. And he said, she stared. At, she was down squatted in that area for 17 seconds. I said, Michael, you didn't see her do it? Yeah, he, he said, no. But I see, he said, I'm positive. And I said, Michael, there is no way on God's earth that, an, that a health inspector came in and did that. It's just, it's just too foreign to me. I can't, I can't. I don't is think this I on can. the first day or the second day of Susan? This is on the 18th. Monday the 18th. 18th. So the day so, she's so, conveniently not wearing the body camera. Correct. Now, I, by the way, this conversation I'm telling you about that I had with Michael, that's the following week after we've been closed yeah. or whatever, because he's now saying, oh my, and they're, and they're getting all the evidence, they're pulling down. And the down. recollection of, hang yeah. on a second, this happened. Yeah. And he said, he, and you actually watched the camera, Michael walked straight in, Michael looked straight into that corner. The other thing that Michael did too was he counted the number of our staff visits to exactly that corner because that the tubs for the soups are held there. Yep. Between four in the morning and when she comes in, because she only ever comes in in the afternoon and we start early. So between four in the morning and when she arrives just 12. around, yeah, around one o'clock, there are 64 
visits to that corner and you didn't see a five centimetre plus black slug, mm. Michael was looking straight in the corner just prior to her going into that corner and he said, I'd have seen it then. It would, anyway, then we have the- Your floors are what colour? White. Oh, white, yeah. And he said, <laughs> um, on top of that, he then showed me what we call the double take. So when she is wearing her body camera- uh, on the next inspection, she comes in on the Wednesday. She goes back to the area she dropped the slug. As she looks up, she spots the camera, she looks down, and then she looks up again. Now, that double take, I know that very well because I used to run cash businesses as part of this business. The oh shit moment. The yeah. oh shit when someone's stealing from a till. <laughs> the cafeteria. <laughs> now, in the 90s, dad ran a, a number of cafeterias for TAFE colleges. Yep. So I say this. Ben, everyone uses the word allegation, this, this, and this. I say this woman did this. And what I want to know is this is effectively, if I'm not correct, I'm defaming her. So, sue me. Not a, not a word. Yeah. I have never had a word from her. Only time she said anything was in the parliamentary inquiry under absolute privilege where she said, no, I didn't do it. Or I can't recall. Or, yeah. <laughs> when she and we got know out, how well that went with hotel quarantine. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. When she, and when she got outside outside, and a current affair asked her for, an, for a statement, she literally ran and she's a big girl. So, um, she not ran that, down the Not street. that it has anything to do with no. uh, anything. Yeah. Yep. Well, some interesting facts that were brought up. The first one was the day she dropped the slug, she wore what was considered and worded as an art smock. Yeah, so it's like, you know, uh, the throw of a smocks that yep. um, nurses often will wear something mm -hmm. like that. Pockets, yeah. the, deep pockets at the front. Deep, deep pockets at the front. And it was our admin manager, Alicia Hodges, who noticed and, and she gave her statement after and she said it all looked really weird. She said she had tissues that were like poking out of the pocket and when she said to her, you're going to have to wear a white lab coat to go through, um, into the facility, she was disconcerted by that. She said, oh, so so talking, Leisha talking to her, she said, she surprised her a bit. She said, I would have thought that a um, health inspector would know this. Um, we were then told later that she'd never inspected a manufacturing facility. She'd never ever done, you know, fish and chip shops and milk bars and that she sort of thing. She was the lucky first. I was the lucky mm. first. And, uh, and she said she had these tissues and, sh and she said, are you okay? Is everything all right? And she patted them down and she patted, oh, I'm just making sure I've got everything. And she pushed a few more of them down. And then when she buttons her coat, she, she puts a coat on, the, the white lab coat she has to wear, yep. and she buttons it down to mid-stomach um, and she leaves the bottom bit open. And, you know, okay, you can call that, uh, what do you call it, uh, circumstantial evidence, but when you put it all together um, and then you see that – she takes a photo of the slug when she supposedly finds it. What she doesn't realise is that Michael steps around her and takes- a, uh, She doesn't see Michael take his phone out and take another photo. So he's taking photos of what she's taking photos Correct. of. Correct. Right. Yeah. Thank and if, God. And you look at the timing, <laughs> yeah. it's within literally a few seconds. Mm -hmm. um, now, all of that, we don't know anything about this. And then come May, when I'm charged for breaches of the Food Act, and I've got- um, 48 charges against me and 48 charges against the company. Part of that, part of the brief of evidence and the evidence they send me is all these photos. Now, these photos have all been run through some sort of screen. They all are tinged greens and yellows. They make the facility look really awful. 
when you see the actual digital photos, it's, it's, it's we had to We had to request that. Our lawyers uh, said to them, the, the footage you've supplied us in this proof of evidence is just hard copy and seems to have a green tinge across all of the photos, which we don't agree with. Um, we'd like a copy of the digital images that should have been provided. And it took tooth and nail to fight to get information out of them. They eventually did provide them and it's chalk and cheese. It's a digital image versus this hazy filter that looks to be um, crossing the images. No, not now, only that, if we continue on, I think I know where you're going with this about the, the backup photo. Yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. So what happens is we get this and I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at all these charges and then I've got, uh, I've got a, um, a guy because I've never, I've never been charged and I've never had to find myself in front of a court for criminal activity. And, uh, and, I, and I had this guy who um, was a specialist um, solicitor. He's, he says, Ian, I'm, I'm really concerned. He said, yeah, these people haven't lost a case in 20 years. He said, they win everything. I said, oh, so they, they're not going to win this one because we didn't do anything wrong. And so we're going through all the evidence. Michael, my younger brother, picks up his photo off his phone that he'd taken and he puts that digital image against the one that I've been given in this brief of evidence. That had the slug in it. That yep. had the slug in it. So both have got the slug in it. Lo and behold, literally a few centimetres from the slug, there's a piece of white tissue. Not only that, when you actually zoom in on it, the tissue must have been wet because our floor has little grains of sand to stop people slipping Yep. because you're in a wet environment. And this tissue has perfectly gone over the grain. So it must have been wet when it landed. Yep. Now, the only way to keep a slug live in your pocket wet. is in a wet tissue. Now, and then the photo that I'm charged with, miraculously, no photo tissue. Photoshopped out. All gone. Amazing, right? Amazing. Not only that, I, I know slugs decently enough to know they usually leave a trail, correct? Correct. So, was there any trail going in any direction no, no. from where it landed? Nothing. No. I mean, you know, just right there, you, you, you're thinking, I mean, I, I assume you both were like, oh, shit, like something's- we talk about being a conspiracy theorist and digging deeper. I mean, once you get that, yeah, it's it's, it's what do you do? Um, yeah. There was no there was no trail. This was an you know slugs are primarily nocturnal. This was twelve fifty p.m. in the afternoon, in the middle of February. Now on a lovely warm sunny day, it's it, it was uh, I think twenty three point four degrees on that particular day. We went back to the Bureau of Meteorology. That was at Moorabbin. That that was at Moorabbin, true. And uh, and on top of that, we had our pest controller Hayes Pest Control. Uh, they attended the site on the fifteenth, which is what three days earlier, the Friday. This is on the Monday. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> he, he he, you know. He usually would make note of any spiders, flies, rodents, ants, etc. I don't, I'm not in my whole time being there at the facility with you, Dad, I don't think I've ever seen a report that's ever mentioned a slug. No. And miraculously, three days later, she finds the largest slug that I think I've probably ever seen in our facility on a floor that gets washed down with chlorine every single day. And, you know, we actually ran an experiment with a with a uh, plastic lid and we found a slug, put the slug on top of that plastic lid, washed down the, uh, the floors with bleach as we, as we do um, and put the slug down where garlic had, had dropped the slug. That slug went off the plastic lid about a, oh, two, three centimetres, maybe an inch off the lid, 
realised that the floor had chemicals, <laughs> yeah, turned on its heel, <laughs> it turned on its heel and went straight back onto the lid. It went. It was a round lid. It went round the whole circumference of the lid, and then double backed on itself and tried a new section and went off onto the floor again. Double backed and went straight back onto the lid and sat still. It didn't move then because it realised it had gone the full circumference. Can't go anywhere. It's on an island, and there's bleach on the floor. Actually, I was just thinking we probably should upload that to YouTube. It's 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 entertaining to watch. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the more you can put out there for people to see, I think yeah. the better. But um, I assume your facility is not on a swamp. No. Last time I checked, no. <laughs> not on a swamp no. near any huge parklands or rivers or creeks. Concrete uh, everywhere. Wow. If, if you if you speak to Hayes Pest Control, um, they tell us that the only time they see slugs is during winter, uh, and we, they say when it's, when it's really wet. Now, according to them, and I believe this is accurate, um, slugs will eat. The bait that is in the rodent bait stations, so it, like a rat sack, mm-hmm. okay. So that that little pellet that they put in the rodent bait stations, and that's to prevent you know mice and other um, other rodents that might be present outside. Um, given that there's a bit of green, you know, open land around our factory. Well, it was. They built the factory. Yeah, that's it true, was that's only true. one one property. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, but even over the gas plates, you know, there's, yeah. there's you'll get rodents. There's nothing you can do about that. So what you have is all these bait stations, and you have them either side of entrances. So at the back door where garlic says it came in, um, that's actually a fire escape. So it's rarely opened except when we're washing down. It'll be opened and drained. But they have a station either side of that door for rodents. Now, slugs apparently can eat that stuff and it won't kill them mm-hmm. and they like it. So what they do is they wrap it in glad wrap so that the rodents will come in and chew through the ga- glad, glad wrap, wrap yeah. to get it. Slug can't. It slows the slug down. Yep. Slugs still get it, but he said only in winter. And he yep. said, we we don't even note it because they don't go inside. They just, he's, you know, he's never seen a slug come inside. Well, I mean, where we are now, we're, we're say a suburb, but it's an industrial area. There's an absolute shitload of building that's gone on. I've been here 10 odd years. Shitload of, you know, I get dust on the cars parked outside sometimes from the, I've not seen one slug. Mm. Yeah. Ever. No. Yeah. And this is, this is a pretty, you know, hilly, swampy area as well. It was. And I've never seen a slug here. Like it's. Yeah. If you came, but if you got a bright torch and you came here at night, I didn't know this, by the way, but um, we brought a slug expert in to have a look and talk to us about it. And he said, well, I'll come down, but I'm not going to come down until whatever 9 it was, PM. 9 p.m. He not wanted it nocturnal. to be. Nocturnal. Yep. Yeah. And this was actually a dry evening. He grabbed a torch and he knew where to look and he went out and he said, see, look, slugs, see? So this guy's got a PhD in slugs. Yeah. Uh, and he knows where to find them. But again, Garlic did not attend our facility at 9 p.m. at night. Yep. This is 12.50 p.m. on a hot summer's day. And even so, <laughs> as, as your experiment that you conducted showed, if, if they would have come in through a doorway, they're not crawling well, all the way to the corner of f- that room. Further yeah. from that, uh, that was inside. I then walked out that back door that, that Garlic alleged that the slug came in, which has a concrete slab behind the back uh, and a small gap between the door and the concrete. And I put the, uh, the, the lid down and the slug went straight off the lid off the concrete, underneath the slab where it Gone. was dark. Yeah. Did See not go up and say, hey, I'm going to go through the door. And the interesting thing is across that back wall and door, there is now a bit of uh, moss and, and weed growing out of the crack. If you go to the photo that uh, Garlic took back in 2019, there is no moss, there is no weed, there is nothing. Why? Because the bleach and the chemicals- we Wash came, out that door. W- w- sure. if, the, if it drained out that door at Flies all- out that side. It, it hits kills. the concrete and kills anything that's sitting on Was the slug alive, the garlic put down? 
Yes. Uh, uh, interestingly, she never took that. She should have collected that as evidence. She didn't take it but as was evidence. was it alive? Yes. It was yeah. actually alive. It was alive. She went to- She, she went actually, on chlorine fours. If you actually watch her, um, and Michael will describe what she does, she goes, once she's spotted it and tells Michael it's there, she then goes and gets some paper towel and she specifically goes with Michael and says, here, watch this. And she, she rubs this against the- Proboscis. proboscis of the- To see if it'll move. To see, and, and it pulls them in. But if you and the other interesting thing, when you actually look at the photos, and there's a couple of photos um, uh, with time intervals, the slug almost doesn't move. And yet when Ben did the experiment with slugs, Very they're actually quick. quite quick. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and the, the reason we believe that uh, she wanted to make sure we knew it was alive- It's another charge. It makes another charge. It, oh, it, really? it forms yeah. a, a whole new charge within, there's one thing in letting a pest enter your facility that may be dead, but it's another to have a pest inside your facility. Alive. And then to have a live pest and in your facility. And not have protocols in place to kill yeah, it. Exactly. You've, you've got one that says, okay, you've got you've got a pest that's come in and, and you've got one that says it's live. So, she was just uh, doubling down on whatever she could do to- to hammer home charges at us. Well, the wrong, the wrong guys, I guess, because, I mean, just hearing the, the amount of testing that you've you've done and, you know, hiring a slug expert, doing the test yourself on the plastic container list, you probably, heard, yeah, I'll tell you the wrong fellas to try and do this with. I'll tell you this right now, Andrew. My uh, my dad uh, is, is fastidious in, in saying science is, is the key. You know, um, my grandfather was a, a chemical engineer uh, and he brought dad up, who's brought me up to say, you can come at me with a hypothesis on anything, but go and then prove that to me and don't just go and prove it to me once, go and br- prove it to me twice to make it repeatable. Because if you can make it repeatable, then I'll believe the science. And uh, and that's the way we've gone about it this. it should be with anything. Correct. Yeah. But that's the way we've gone about everything in this investigation is to say, we must go and, and do it by fact corroborate the evidence and don't go off half cocked. We go and make sure that what we're saying we can prove and we did with, I mean, 16 volumes of evidence is what we supplied as our complaint. And you, you've been closed now since what was the- I worked, it out the other, I worked it out the other day and it's that was probably a week ago, but it was 803 days and since- The official close date since, was when- since, well, officially, it's the 22nd of February 2019 is when they put it on the wall. They actually verbally close us and have that day effect before. the day before on the 21st. Mm-hmm. The And that actually is another interesting point. On the body cameras, so they've edited stuff. You were talking to Ben yeah. about that. But if you have a look at the metadata for the body camera that's on garlic on the day that Leanne Johnson, the coordinator of public health, she marches in and closes us in the name of Brett Sutton. Dr. Uh, she just says Brett Sutton, Chief Health, Health Officer of Victoria, um, says cease production now. That's what she says. Mm-hmm. Now, they actually edited, they loaded that footage into an editing machine and they edited it out. Adobe Premiere Pro is what But we they can see. forgot to save the edit, which meant that it didn't work. But the metadata shows what they tried to do. <laughs> so they actually tried to get rid of that. So we didn't. Um, and, and we found that out through FOI because they said, oh, that, that doesn't exist, that piece of data. And we said, well, yes, it does. We've got it. The edit you tried to do didn't, didn't work. Because <laughs> they legally couldn't. Yeah. Well, I, I and, and, this, and this is the important point when we talk about editing of the footage. You, you look at an investigation and, and cops look for fingerprints. Well, in digital age, we look for a digital fingerprint. And part of that comes back down to a username. So, you log on to Andrew Bogart's computer and it's abogart.whatever. Yeah. Uh, the same goes for 
the editing of this footage in the metadata. You go through and look at the, the script and it says uh, modification date. It was the 21st of- no, no, it was 20, 21st or 22nd March. of March. Uh, and the username says Elizabeth Garlic. And she used Adobe, Adobe Premiere Pro and she did it at X time. And it shows that this is a month after we've been closed. She's editing the body camera footage. And that is before we've been charged. Now, in any criminal court, if you're taken there, you have the right to defend yourself with all the available evidence. Well, if you're cherry picking the evidence that you're going to supply to us by editing it's it out, yeah. it's conveniently unlawful. Yeah, <laughs> so, but convenient for them. You know, very much cause, so, you know, yeah. and it's just- this, Here's the thing, Andrew. We're dealing with a woman who is, who is um, tampering with evidence. I mean, these are breaches. These are indictable offences. Heavy, heavy offences by Seriously. definition. And, and, and to, be, to be very clear, if you look up uh, uh, an environmental health officer or, or what is under the Food Act, an authorised officer, an authorised officer falls under the terms of the Crimes Act of an investigating official. Now, under the Crimes Act. Under the Crimes Act. A police officer is an investigating an official. So, effectively, in layman's terms, a health inspector is the food police. Correct. Yeah, and they have so the same powers. Now we're saying, now we're saying, that person has gone and edited and tampered with footage that they intended to prosecute ninety six charges of of my dad and his business, along with dropping a slug, along with dropping <laughs> along a slug. With, you know, so we go to that. When do you officially get notified of your ninety six charges? So forty forty eight personally and forty eight on the business. Is that correct? Correct. Fourteenth so of June. Uh, yeah. So that's on the fourteenth of June. Um, that's very interesting because between, so I would have been charged earlier. Except that um, Rogerson, the previous health inspector we'd had, she comes out and says that they made her change her statement and that they were setting us up and they were doing whatever they could to improve their chances of prosecution. So they were fabricating evidence. She came out and said that publicly, or was that the phone call that you received? Uh, so at first it was a phone call that I received, uh, and then she came out publicly and said it. So what happened then was they pulled the original brief back. Garlic rewrites her statement, so that's why you've, I've got what, two, two months statements. Later, a month later, yeah. yeah. So it took another two months because all of a sudden, one of their they needed Rogerson's statement because Rogerson's statement, when they changed it, said things like she had already warned Ben that we weren't doing things properly. She'd told Ben in a meeting that she had with him that the, pro the reason she couldn't sign off on that was that. The day that she supposedly had this meeting with Ben. Well, this was this was actually on the first day. So when she came to take the samples on February first, she came into the factory, and uh, I saw Kim that morning, and I said, "Kim, I'm, I'm actually in a meeting, but I'll walk you out to our our supervisor um, in in charge of that area." Left her with her and said, "You know, I'll, I'll talk to you later. I have to keep going with what I'm doing, and I trust my staff to do the right thing with you." So off we went. I actually had to leave after that meeting and go to a, um, a sales presentation down at Leangatha. I wasn't even at the factory when she finished her uh, subsequent sampling. Yeah. The document that Ian's referring to, she apparently finished the, uh, the, the inspection and came into my office and then warned me. Yeah. Or, or a few days later, called me and warned me, and neither of those things happen. And it's just, you sit back and go, how can you have such blatant lies? Well, that's what she said. She said she couldn't sign off on this document because it was a because it was a blatant lie. She knew that Ben would call her out if she did, and but she was threatened. This was if she wanted to keep her job. This is what she had to do, and so she went off on leave. Um, a guy who 
she confided in the, um, another previous employee of Daniel on Council, who was the one who contacted me and said, you need to ring your previous health inspector, Rogerson. You need to talk to her. And I said, why? What's this all about? And he said, just ring her. So I said, okay. So I had to find, I didn't, I had no numbers for it because I didn't, um, Ben and, and Michael did most of the dealings with, with the health the, inspectors. Yeah. yeah. And, and my view was always, you know what? Sometimes they can be difficult, et cetera. Just do whatever they want. Uh, we know what's safe. We have a higher standard in terms of our ISO certification. Just keep them happy. That was our, that was always our attitude. And, um, yeah, so I, I then got a number for her. I rang her and said, you know, hello, Kim. I was, um, Jeff told me to give you a call. And she said, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to tell you something. And when she did, it blew me away. And the fact that they – see, remember, at that stage, I haven't received the brief veterans. I say, what, you still think they're going to charge you? <laughs> she said, yeah, they're going to charge you. They're coming after you, yeah. And I said, for what? She said – They've fabricated a lot of stuff in. They, they are, they are coming. You will be charged because I, I couldn't believe it. Remember, at, by then, we had already done an article with. Uh, we'd done a show with Channel Seven News. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been on John Fain uh, show oh, because okay. we had now got all the enumeration reports that showed all the things they said. Clear, yeah, were, were rubbish. Yep. They were all lies. And this lady was, you'd worked with her for many years, correct? Uh, um, three or f oh, probably four or five years. She, I think she, 2016, she uh, started investigating. Yeah. We, had, we had a guy called Ray Christie first. Then we had a guy called Robin Tomic. Then we had Rogerson for one year, I think, and then she was off. So we had and someone Robin else. Oh, the, oh, that's when he came in. Yep. And then back to Rogerson. And then it came back to Rogerson. There's a team. So in in- Standing on council, there's the coordinator of public health, who is currently Leanne Johnson. Uh, and then under that, there's a number of EHOs, whether they're senior EHOs and have been in the role for a while or just a, a standard EHO, um, like the distribution of wards in, in the council electorate, each health officer is, is put zone. into a, a different zone. Um, and so if, if someone's away for a, you know six months or whatever it might be, they, they shuffle around yeah. and, and try different areas. But I understand Rogerson was very stern and fair. But very, very stern as a health inspector. Oh, yeah. Um, pre all this, pre- 100%. Pre her calling you. And the luck for you guys was that she just had a heart, correct? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And just, just took a, it took a lot of courage for her. I mean, any person, you know, we, we have to fight this because this is our livelihood. This is our business. This is our family. Everything. She didn't have to do that. She could have just kept her head down and just stayed quiet because, you know, it would have been all too hard. But she did. She had the moral fibre to stand up and say, no, no. This is wrong. And then we, we branch onto that. Um, do you know what, what is she doing these days? Is she on just permanent leave? Is she well, so, disappeared off the face of the earth? Uh, so she, at that time, she she was bullied mm -hmm. um, into getting her to do a, a certain course of action, which she wouldn't do. So she went then on. She went off on sick leave. She used all her annual leave, all her sick leave. I think. I believe, not sure, but I think she's used all of her what are the, um, long service leave. Mm. Um, and But at the same time, she'd made a work cover uh, claim and Danny on council have fought her all the way, absolutely all mm -hmm. the way. And yet I'm told Elizabeth Garlic is off on extended leave at the moment and they're paying her. Job well done, just go to Bali for a couple of years. Yeah, that's right. On yeah, us, yeah, on yeah, the council. Yeah. That's it. Job well done, yeah. <laughs> yep. Not, not surprised at all, um, but yeah, I mean it's. I, I, yes, in in the meantime, I think um, Rogerson was about to go to court with them and line them up in court. Now, if she'd gone to court for the work cover claim, 
a lot of the evidence would have come out in that because a lot of what happened mm -hmm. to us it relates to her, obviously. Yeah. So there would have been witnesses called, garlic would have been on the stand, blah, blah, blah. So counsel took her right up to the wire and then they rolled over. Settled. They never want to get in a court. Yeah, Every they'll time- They'll push you to, to, to waste money on lawyers and if you're, yep. if you're an everyday battler that can't afford- a barrist, I mean, barristers these days, you yeah, know, you, you need a mortgage. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, has a regular Joe with a small business gets 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 a notice from the council, you're screwed, right? Yep. Um, talk me through the musical chairs when it comes to police departments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I shouldn't even laugh. You know, I brought my kids up to believe that if something went wrong and you were wronged or someone committed a crime against you, that going to the police um, was what you do and you go and tell them your story and they'll they'll then, you know, do the right thing, take action. So uh, I have to take you back to the end of – so well, – can, can, can I jump in there? Between when the brief was issued, just jumping back to what you've said before, in June, that took us to October that's and right. that's when all 96 charges, we said we would fight every single one mm -hmm. and they were all withdrawn. Okay, that was on the last. That was on the day that we were at the court. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so, so that was before. So before you, we before get to the police. the police. Okay, so sorry. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to add so, that in. So run that through. Okay, so you had the nine. The nine I read this as well. You had the ninety six charges, and as as we've had the brief, we then are getting ready for um, <laughs> preparation for the criminal prosecution of of dad and the business. Dad's lawyers receive a call from Dandenong Council's lawyer, and he says, uh, "So, what's Ian going to be pleading guilty to?" And our lawyer turned around to him and said, nothing. And he, and he said, what, what, do you, what, what do you mean? He said, well, nothing. Ian will fight you on every single charge and plead not guilty. And he said, oh, in which case, well, we better, better let the court know and we'll go straight to a contested bench. And anyway, he went and did that. That's why we got to court on October 3rd for a contested mention. Dad and I were sitting outside of uh, the courtroom. Our lawyer and our barrister... Uh, then went into an interview room with uh, Danny Nong's barrister, uh, their Johnson. lawyer, and also Leanne Johnson, the coordinator of public health, and sat in there for probably an hour and a half, two hours, and had a discussion. Our lawyer and barrister walked out and said, Ian, Ben, come with us. We went outside. Um, we had a discussion, and they said, basically, uh, where's the effect of they'll drop all, all 92 uh, charges and leave just four. And we said, which ones were those? And that was charges one, two, three, and four. And we um, sort of just looked at each other and said, by all means, take those, take, take, take them in there. We don't care. Yeah. So I can't stop them withdrawing charges. That's entirely up to them. Yeah. And what I said to my legal team then was, that's fine. If they want to drop those and leave those four charges in place, more than happy. I've got the, the four they chose. Were, I was quite happy with because I had exact evidence to show that they were all rubbish. But they essentially thought you would take the plea then, essentially. With the that, that's what they were trying to do. They mm. say that, and then they said, oh, "Look, what we're going to do is we're going to convert a couple of the other charges just into infringement um, infringement notices." notices. Mm -hmm. I said, "You." Uh, so his name was Vince. I said, "Vince, please go and be crystal clear with these people. They change nothing." They want to charge me. We go in front of the magistrate and we answer the charges. But you're not changing anything. Okay. So that goes from that. Ben and I then go and cool our heels and then we're called for court. We're supposed to go in. And then literally as we're walking to the door, Vince grabs me by the arm and says, okay, we're back in the interview room again. They've just changed what they're going to do. 
And I said, okay. So the clerk of the courts then calls another case, says, okay, guys, off you go. So we sit down and we're in this room and he says, okay, they've said they will drop, withdraw all the charges now. I said, okay. So we go home now, do we? He said, well, what they would like is they want you to sign up for a non-disparagement clause. <laughs> I said, what, does that mean I can't talk to the press or the media? And uh, and he said, yes, that's basically what they're after. And I said, in which case, tell the magistrate. We're going from the Yeah, we're going back. Leave all 96 in place, off we go. Anyway, uh, but no, they still pull the pin. So they get in. Interestingly enough, we go into court. Um, their barrister gets up and says to the judge, Your Honour, we're, we're withdrawing the charges. The, the magistrate is used to this apparently in food cases. So she says, oh, I see, because they're, because they're mirror charges, you're withdrawing them against Mr. Cook, are you? Just the company, yeah. Which and we're leaving the company, right? <laughs> and, um, and, my, and the barrister says, uh, no, Your Honour, we're withdrawing the lot. And now she literally rolls her she eyes. Stopped. She just she, stopped and she says- but I'm, I'm hearing this correctly. You're pulling nice everything. Charges. And he's like, yes, that's what we're doing. Yep. Uh, and then one of the one of the newspapers had applied to get all the charges, etc. And uh, and the judge just said uh, that application she approved. She said it's not up to me to tell the media what they can and can't have in an open court. So yes, you can have them. Uh, and we literally walked out of there, and that was that. And at that point, what were your lawyer fees at roughly to that point? So for that exercise, getting to there. Uh, well, we, we'd started other proceedings as well. Sorry, we'd started getting ready for other proceedings Just protecting as well. yourself. Just protecting myself. Okay, to just protect myself was the best part of 70 grand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, small business, um, yeah. everyday it's people. It's a lot of money. It's it is a lot, a lot of, money. of money. So now, thanks for covering that up because no, that was very important. I thought that came I thought that came after the you got police involved. Okay, so now you've, now you've gone, okay, we want to charge some people because there's some fraudulent activity going on. So what, yeah, so what happened was, um, uh, you know, this has been- it's very easy to say now that, you know, we're cool, karma collector, whatever. This has been an emotional roller coaster. I've never been on charges before. Um, they've, they've destroyed my name. And so I'm saying this is completely wrong. Not only wrong for me, but it's also something that can't happen to anyone else again. You can't destroy people, destroy families, destroy their livelihoods and just say that's okay. So uh, we made an appointment with um, a detective, so a guy called Detective Mark Hawker. Uh, Detective Senior Sergeant Mark Hawker at um, Dandenong CIU. Uh, we met with him and we met with him and Detective Penry and Detective Mokos. Yep. So Mark Hawker was effectively in charge. Uh, he listened. He listened to my complaint. Um, he seemed very pleasant. Um, and he said, yep, okay. And basically he said, look, we'll run with this, but I need you to, to go the course. I don't need you to, um, and he'd said this to Rod, one of the retired detectives, um, I don't want Ian suddenly pulling the pin if we put all these resources and work into his complaint and then mm -hmm. he suddenly gets cold feet yeah. or decides. But I said, no, no, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. I need justice. I need it for my healing process and I need to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. And so uh, we get Penry and Mokos come down and spend hours going through the video footage. The first time was probably five hours they sat there for. Yeah. And so, and they both sitting there saying, oh my gosh, look at this crime, look at this crime. They were, they were thinking up stuff that we didn't know, right? Because yep. these guys are trained in this area. Uh, so that all goes. And then literally all of a sudden, Penry is put on extended leave. Uh, sorry, sudden leave, whatever they call it. And so he's, he's been um, pulled and you think, 
I didn't know what was happening. Um, just went, went cold, didn't it? Yeah, it went yeah. cold. So I actually wrote to the inspector in charge. Um, what do they call it? No, he's the assistant commissioner for the zone, for the area. At the time. At the time. Which was, which was Robert, Robert Hill. Hill. Um, and I also wrote to Superintendent Hollywood. And from Hill, I got nothing. No response, no nothing. Uh, I think Hollywood's department. No, I, I don't, well, we, did, we hardly received, we, we definitely didn't receive anything from yep. Hill. And I don't recall we, we received anything from Hollywood either. Uh, and then we were told... Um, that the brief of evidence and the work that Henry had done had gone to Moorabbin CIU for a review. Now, I spoke to the two retired detectives that had been working with us and I said, what, what, what is a review? What's that all about? And they said, we've never heard of it. This is, this is completely extraordinary. The crime was committed in Daninong. Daninong are the people that should be investigating it. If you've made allegations against other people, then you need to, then they should be brought in and given an opportunity to put their side of the story. That's the way it works. And so I said, oh, okay. So we've got now an Inspector Kerr down at Moorabbin. So as it turned out, Paul, one of the retired detectives, I believe had worked with him once or whatever. So he contacted him and said, look, we'd just like to know what's going on. And Kerr said, okay, I've had a look at the thing. He said, I was literally about to write a note back to Danny Nong saying, here's your brief back, just get on with it. There's obviously stuff here that's got to be done. Uh, then he was sent on leave. And in Moorabbin? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So this inspector's now been sent on forced leave, okay? So he's gone on forced leave. He apparently takes the brief with him to read. When he comes back, he call, contacts Paul or Paul, con I don't know who contacted who, but he says, oh, uh, yeah, I've, been, I've read through it. You know, I think there's a bit of a conflict of interest here. And there's too much emotion, and there's some emotion in between Dan and on police and Dan on council, correct? Yeah. Yes, yep. yeah. So I, I said to Paul, Oh, how can you have a conflict? He said, You can't have a conflict of interest. So let's put this in perspective, Andrew. If you have criminal intentions, go and work for the city of Dandenong because any criminal activity you do in Dandenong can't, yeah. can't be investigated by Dandenong police. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I just don't get that. That's that's not that's just what they've what they've said. That that's, that can't be the case. Correct. So then, so then it goes from there goes out to Casey. No, 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 no. You then because of we were already frustrated by this time of the fact that it had been duck shoved. Yeah, it's a between yeah. Danny Nong and Marabin. Uh We'd written to Commissioner Hill, had no response. Uh, so Dad wrote a uh, a letter to Commissioner Patton. Chief Commissioner Patton and said, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that I've made a complaint. It's been an extraordinary stress on our, our family and, and our business and our staff. Yeah. Please, can you, you know, tell us what's going to happen because we're very concerned. Next minute, we then received in the in the mail a, uh, a letter back from the Chief Commissioner that said that uh, Detective Sergeant Chris Lewis down at uh, uh, KCCIU was now in charge of the case and um, and that's where... Lewis contacted me, told me he was uh, doing it. He came in, he did all the same things Penry did, and he agreed. You know, he, he went through it with us. He could see the criminality. He then puts it up for approval. So his brief, his brief goes up for approval. Now, that approval usually just goes to the next rank up. So he was a detective sergeant. It goes to the detective senior sergeant. The detective senior sergeant looks at it and says, okay, yep, you've got this evidence, you've got this evidence, that's fine. Yep, you're approved to go and arrest people, bring them in for questioning and do those things. So that's what should have happened. Yep. 
Um, but then what happens is his boss, so first it gets, um, it, it bounces around. So he, he then contacts me and says it's been taken off him and it's gone to some Southeast management group and they have to approve it. And then I once again ask the retired guys, I mean, they haven't been retired that long, seven, eight years out of the force, and they're saying, no, 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 there is no such thing as going to a, um, a, a regional, a regional group. And, and then Lewis tells me, well, the reason they had to do that is because it's a high-profile case. I say, oh, well. So we wait, then we have a conversation on the phone where I say, Chris, I'm getting seriously frustrated. This is taking weeks. You know, this is- we, It was we, six weeks from, from when, when he, when Chris Lewis told us that he- submitted it to his boss for, for assessment. Um, it then took further six weeks for this, inverted commas, review to take place. And even on the phone uh, to Dab one day, he turned around and said, look, I understand you're frustrated and I'm even starting to get frustrated. Six weeks since I, I put this in, we need to have an answer and I'll, I'll follow it up for you. Anyway, the next minute he says, I want to come down with my boss. He comes down with his boss, who is a uh, detective senior, senior sergeant, sergeant, Glenn, Glenn Cruz. Cruz. When he comes in, he says, I oh, know there was none of that. It's just me. It's just my decision. Well, we went through all of this. And, this, and then he goes through this long-winded thing about saying, well, I think we're going to have trouble being able to um, charge people. And I don't think we're going to get enough evidence. So I've read the brief. I've been as thorough as I can. Nothing to see here. And so... At that point, we're telling Lewis about new evidence that we've got, which is this deep metadata that shows Elizabeth Garlic tampered with the what evidence. What we spoke about before. What you're talking about before. Mm -hmm. So, Lewis is going, oh, okay. So, he goes off with Ben into Ben's office. While he's off with Ben in Ben's office, we line up this Cruz guy and we say, so, Detective Cruz, can you tell me the three charges you're saying that were appropriate, et cetera, et cetera? Tell me, which were those three? Oh, I, I don't know. Okay. And then Paul asks him, so who, who else have you interviewed of people that have had allegations against them? Oh, well, none. And he steps through and he's thinking- Hang on, but Paul, Paul lined him up and said, so you, you have not even questioned anyone that we have alleged in our brief of evidence for criminal activity? And he said, no. So he didn't speak to Garlic, didn't speak to Johnson, didn't speak to anyone. How can you do a thorough investigation if you don't even go and question the people who are allegedly the criminals? So, yeah, so this, this is all. Anyway, so we think uh, we were very frustrated. We were also emotionally destroyed. I mean, we, Ben and I were both um, quite distraught about this, let alone telling my wife. I mean, yeah, that was the, the, there are tough times. How through far on are we now? How far on are we now from this? So uh, March, this is this March 2021. March 2021. Yep, yep. So then, uh, so what happens then? No, is no, no. That's 2019 was the initial complaint. November 2019. So yep. it's it's close to just just shy of two years since okay. the original complaint. Oh, so March 21, you mean? Yeah, yeah that's March right. 21. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, the next thing happens is what Can, we do. What yeah. we what we do is we say, okay, we want our brief back. So we go and collect the brief. Actually, Paul does it. He goes and collects the brief off Lewis on the Monday. And then he comes, he delivers it back. When he delivers it back to me, we're looking through it. And I said, Paul, we gave them a hard drive with all the video footage on it. Where's that? Mm. Oh, it's not there. So I ring Lewis and say, where, where is our hard drive, please, Detective Lewis? And he says, oh, look, sorry, oversight. Um, no problem. Come and collect it. So Michael shoots down to uh, the police station and picks up hard drive and then he gets it back. When he got it back, because I didn't think that they really did look at anything and I don't think Cruz would have looked at anything, 
uh, I said to Andrew, my nephew, who's been working on this with us, um, can you check the metadata and tell me whether or not or how many times this hard drive has been accessed? So he says, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll work on that. So he goes into the hard drive and when he goes into the hard drive, he finds that documents have been put on the hard drive. So you or I or people who don't know computers probably wouldn't be able to go quite this deep. Andrew goes right into the back blocks of this thing and says, this particular hard drive has a recycle bin, but it doesn't show up when you're operating the hard drive. It's like a hidden one. Yeah, yeah. It's just an area that stuff goes to and it can be re recovered from. So Andrew recovers it. What does he recover? He recovers Ash Penry, the first detective. He recovers his briefing notes. These briefing notes are addressed to Southern Command. What does he say? He lists five persons of interest. He lists all the criminality. He lists the charges that should be looked at. He recommends that it should be done further. The only thing he says is that he's not sure that he, he would need more resources in Dandenong to be able to pursue the matter, but that the matter should be pursued. You may have seen it. I posted the uh, the four images of, of that report yep. on Twitter. So that then comes back out. I, in the meantime, I had already written to the Chief Commissioner asking him to intervene and to give Shane Patton his due. The Commissioner comes out and says, something's not right here. I'm going to have a look at it again. And that's the point. That's where we are now. And we have a um, superintendent who has now been given specifically that task, and that is to review what the decision that was made by Cruz. And we're very pleased with that because on even just just looking at it, you can't say they did a thorough investigation. And this, this goes deeper than just your case. This is, in my opinion, you know, having it moved three or four times through departments, um, everything that you've discussed, it's there's tentacles everywhere. Absolutely, um, I want to know as a as a Victorian resident, as a state, you know, as a taxpayer of this of this country and this this state, and even a former resident of Tandong City Council. I want to talk. I want. I want those cops. Warned. Why were you stood down? I want to know the reasons why they were given leave. Who gave those orders? This. This just goes so deep that I think, you know, this. This is one of the, the worst cases of corruption that I've heard of. Usually, you hear it with, not against a small business. You hear it with, <laughs> getting their tentacles in, in, in different parts of, of everyday life. But to go after a small business at these to these lengths is is just unbelievable and. I mean, I give credit to you two guys and, and everyone involved for just sticking this out because, like you said, I, I, I imagine it's you know caused a huge toll on your family, your friends, your mental health. Top that off with coronavirus and all you know the world's yeah. pretty much on fire outside, and then your your personal life has been affected. You know, it's just it's just mind boggling. It is. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, yeah, there there have been days when you just thought, but at the end of the day, I say. It's one step when, in front of the other. Yeah, but we, you know what? If you push someone so far. It becomes a point of, well, I've, you've taken everything off me now. What else have I got to lose? 100%. Yeah, house money right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's um, – and someone asked me to quantify that for them once, and I said, I know it's hard, but if you're employed by someone, think of it like this. Imagine you worked for a business your whole life, and you put money into super and did everything, but right when they were about to – you're about to retire. Go bang. Yeah. And you're whatever. Um, you – all of a sudden, someone fabricates charges against you and they destroy your name and you're then terminated. So you've lost your job with this ridiculous variant that they're also able to take all your super off you. 
So in my case, what happened was I have very little in super. We were in an intensive capital business. Money that we made was dumped back in. If I took you up and showed you the factory now, I can show you $2 million worth of state-of-the-art packaging equipment so that we could do what we did. We invested a huge amount of money into the, into the patents and what we were doing and into our own IP. That was my super. That's what I was supposed to be able to sell, and that's been taken off me. Yeah, as, as anyone with a business that they believe in, you know, most most you know, I'm involved in some startups and some venture capital things and angel investing and whatnot and some some seed investing. Is that most people that are passionate and believe in what they do do the same thing? Yeah, they're, they're they're putting everything into that. They're not. I'm going to save this in case my business doesn't go well. No, <laughs> it's my business is going to go well. So yeah. I totally get it. And most budding entrepreneurs, most small businesses would totally understand that. But you did have an offer um, for an investor. Yeah. The week before the Listeria case, correct? Correct. Which was, you want to break that down for us? Okay, so the, these investors were coming in to help us accelerate what we were doing. Um, they were due in to see production on Monday the 25th. So, you know, the papers go on the wall on the early morning on the 22nd. We're closed on the Friday. Come Monday, they turn up. Um, they came in, uh, literally, they came in. Uh, they discussed most of this had been pre-organized and they'd spent quite a bit of time doing due diligence with Alex, uh, who's our contracts manager. Um, and they came in and they were offering $2.5 million for 10% um, based on uh, use of the IP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and with a view that they would probably either take out or set up another facility that was a mirror of what we did and we would have equity in that and they would mm -hmm. pay for that. So really that valued the business just raw on just that at $25 million on the Monday by the Wednesday or the Thursday. At first, Alex spoke to them and said, look, this is a flash in the pan. You know about the what happened with the rock melons, et cetera. It'll be cleared up and whatever. But they went away and then... They then reviewed all the media and the stuff the department had said about us, et cetera, et cetera, and they just said, if it can happen to you, it can happen to us. Thanks anyway and see you later. And so, not, only, not only having an investor on board to help you grow a $2.5 million cash injection, yeah, <laughs> being able to you know get your business from point A to point B, that's a massive jump and everything that you've essentially worked for the last 30, 40 years for that, for that moment that was so close yeah. and just- Funnel, not funny, but coincidentally, the same week or the same the same month yeah. yep. as getting shut down. I mean, yeah, that's just- A macabre twist of how the whole story unfolds. Yeah, a, yeah, a twist of fate. And yeah, that was probably the most emotionally devastating time for me. I must admit, when I think back now, that, that whole, you know, the week pretty much from about, from the 21st going through to the following week, which I think takes you through to the 1st of March that week, um, today, I remember the key events. Yeah, it's a bit of a blur. It's a bit of a blur because it was it was almost surreal. You felt like you were you know, when people talk about out of body and you're looking down on something. It, it felt like that. It felt like you were. How is this happening? What's say, going on? Why haven't I got know, control? When when I say it's a bit of a blur, it's a blur that I don't want to think about. But then when I sit down and I go through it, I can really step through the week very clearly on how how the events occurred and that yeah. it, it saddens me and, and, and scares me the power that they wield in what they did to us. And and we know, you know, with, with media that we have received and, and posting on social media and such, um, we know there are two two other businesses that have been affected by Elizabeth Garlic 
they, that she, as an inspector, went to two other businesses um, and conveniently found uh, dead dead mice mm-hmm. on both of their on both of their uh, premises. Whilst wearing an art smock, most likely. Yeah, most likely. And <laughs> uh, and one of them in particular, you know, I just sit back and it was underneath a, a gas burner was where this this mouse was meant to have lived. Not too many mice decide to live under a gas burner that. Injects a flame. Water pretty, pretty hot. Yeah, pretty hot. Pretty hot. Not a great place. I mean, it's the equivalent of, of, you know, in my world, winning an NBA championship and then a week later being told, oh, yeah, the, the team that beat you actually won, so you're going to have to give that ring back. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's yeah. what I equate it to. It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. what? What are you talking about? I've got it on my finger. Yeah. No, no, um, hand that back, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just, just mind-boggling and not only with the valuation of your business, talk to me about the IP that you had and, and, and what you had developed in the food tech Okay, so Industry. yeah, so we, we we have patents pending on our uh, process that we that we developed, um, and all of that had meant that through twenty eighteen and towards the end of twenty eighteen, we had um, had interest shown from the UAE, uh, actually a number of countries, so UAE, Japan, Singapore, Singapore, Korea, Korea, Argentina, Argentina. They'd all. Um, I'll just just quickly we. Um, there's a there's a thing called ITSI, which is the international dietary international dietary dysphagia standardisation initiative. Initiative. Thank you. <laughs> That's why it's called ITSI. Yeah. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful, so um, to speak. <laughs> they uh, they they ran a challenge uh, for um, industry to show what they called the uh, one of the th- the tests. The, so the spoon test. Do a little video. Put it online. Now this video is only going out to dietitians and speech pathologists worldwide. So we <clears throat> we won that challenge. And you won it by getting the most likes. So to just put it in perspective, our nearest competitor got on the worldwide mark, uh, the worldwide, you know, um, IDSI group of of professionals. Uh, they got about a thousand likes. So I think it was still going when Ben gave me the number. We got seventeen no, no, and a half. You've got that wrong. It's fourteen thousand. Oh, 14,300. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we we're. We win the challenge, right? Right. Uh, and this is because of what we're doing. Now, that gets us seen and known and, and, and people in, in industries around the place that deal with these sorts of health products were talking to us. We had the UAE came to us um, through a contact and they set up an agency agreement where that ad- agency agreement was signed off and was valued at $50 million and they had a they had an investor they were going to set up. They wanted to do the halal meats themselves there. They wanted um, us to produce export product from Australia to send there of the vegetables because that's- Australian be, produce is- is, is, is It was deemed to be the best. Um, and same as with the others. Um, Google. Google. I cook foods. foods. We pulled the pin. They pulled the pin. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was fifty million that that was valued at. That's in writing. They actually signed the agreement with us. And that was predominantly around your ro- the, the technology with the rice, right? Correct. Uh, no, no. This all, was all uh, texture all, modified. All texture food. Modified. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so you'll be just break that down. What- so texture modified food is food that people who suffer from swallowing mm-hmm. difficulties, right? Um, you know, you and I can eat a piece of um, roast chicken, but someone might have a, a slight difficulty and go to what is called uh, soft or bite sized and teeth issues, no teeth as well. Teeth. Yep, yep. Yep. You know, yep. tongue swallowing, yep. um, strokes, MND, you know, all those kind of uh, di- diseases, Dementia, age. They, they can all have their effect on the, the throat and the swallowing. So, 
pureed and mince moist are, are the areas in, in which we really focused in on and we wanted to make a, uh, a product that was uh, aromatic, nutritious, um, actually looked like the product so it's visually representative of, of what you or I or, or someone who, who now is on that diet remembers and can see what that product is. It's what they remember it to be like, what mm. it tastes like, etc. So that's what what we started to really focus in on, and that's the premises for um, the investment of the two and a half million. That's for the the UAE, Argentina, Korea. All of them were looking at that technology in what we had developed because it was it was not a product like everyone else that uses uh, stocks, uh, water. It wasn't mush. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, and and it's not that people were you know lots of people use different binders and supplements to try and get the nutritional quantity quality um the point is when you use a, a stick blender and a piece of chicken you can blend it but it'll be a thick mess that that doesn't swallow easily for yeah. someone on a puree so you need to add uh, a water or a stock to get it to that consistency anyway we so we were able to do pure food which gave people one visually put them back with dignity in their dining it also nutritionally helped them because they're getting real food it tastes right so it's what they expect they eat more yeah, and anyone that's been in a hospital, at least back in the day, it's gotten a little bit better, knows knows how demoralizing it is to wake up from a long surgery and be given something that you you want your relative to go out and get you some food. Um, and then nursing homes, retirement homes, uh, my grandmother's in one, it's, a, it's the same thing. It's, you know, um, there was a raw commission into it for a reason, right? Because these people um, in their dying days or their later days and they're just treated like a number. Yep. And I think, you know, what, what you guys were – we're doing with this. Not only that, think about this: like a, a, a small business from Dandenong, yeah, UAE, countries, Argentina, Argentina yeah. yep. countries you're talking to worldwide. Oh, this is somewhat how uh, you know we spoke about it off air. If I'm the, the state government, if I'm Dandenong Council, I'm putting you guys on a pedestal and saying, "Look what we did in Dandenong. Look what we did." Unheard of, Dandong City Council. Look what we did. Look what we're, we're we're at the forefront of this technology. We're all over the world. We're helping people. Um, people love our food, and it's it's just all gone to shit because you know of basically some petty government bureaucracy that's just knee deep in. Well, you can't you can't everything you're saying is right, and they probably would be able to do that if they hadn't invested in a business that had been losing millions of dollars and mm. been propped up by DHHS for the last 10 years. So they had, what did they have to do? They had to make sure that it was the only player in the game. How'd they do that? Kneecap I cook foods and of get course. us out and the picture. It's just such a shame though. It's just because arguably the reverse would have happened if Danong City Council or state government came to you and said, hey, we want to help back you. Give us a percentage, whatever. Let's figure out the numbers. They get involved, they get their clip, they pay their, you know, <laughs> politicians, whoever they need to pay. And then it's not only from Australia, it's from Dandenong yeah. on the world stage. Yeah. I think the mistake you probably made was not having a labor union in iCook Foods. If I, if I have to <laughs> yeah, sit here and tell you, you should have hired a, a massive union labor force there. And <laughs> I think um, Andrews would have funded you to the cows come home. But, you know, that's just real quick before we finish, talk to me about the detectives, how they how they got on board. I, I, you've worded it as your guardian angels to an yeah. extent. They, they're pro bono. They're not charging no. you. And I think that's a fantastic story as well in this. Yeah, yeah it is. I, it, that is that is one of the extraordinary things that's happened. So we've had we've been um, extraordinarily lucky on the way through with other people. Now, I was told very early in the piece by a, um, 
an associate that who by the way was a previous in his previous life was a um the Crown, Crown. Crown Prosecutor. Anyway, he said to me, Ian, you really need to forget about the lawyers for a moment. You need to go and find yourself a couple of retired detectives. They, they are trained differently. They think differently. They, they, they can help. And I thought, okay. So we started asking around, asking a few people. Anyway, a, a guy that I used to deal with said, oh, I know a guy. So I got onto him um, and his name, uh, he was Peter Butts. He apparently was the detective in the shootings at um, Hoddle Street. Yep. Anyway, um, Peter said, look, I'm flat out, I can't help you. But he said, I've got this other guy you can talk to. His name's Rod Porter. So Rod was uh, a detective inspector when he retired. He ran uh, St Kilda Police Station. So he was pretty used to a big bad station with lots of things happening and lots of different crimes that occur. And he, I rang him. He'd already been worded up. I rang him and, and he said, okay, and come up and tell me your story, a bit like we're sitting here talking to you today, Andrew. And he said, come up and tell your story. If I believe you're on the level and if I believe that you aren't part of the whole problem, then we'll see what we can and do. And just so we're clear, these old school detectives, uh, I know a few, fair few of them, I've got family, friends. These are the real deal, no nonsense. They'll yep. tell you you're an idiot to your face and we'll <laughs> out of the room. <laughs> That's right. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And Rod is a, you know, he's a- um, no bullshit. He's no bullshit. Um, he's statesmanlike. I mean, he's a, he, and he's very calm, but he calls a spade a spade. So anyway, I went up and sat down with him. And after talking straight for four hours with him, he's, uh, uh, and then we went he downstairs. He had a notepad. He had a notepad and he dropped the pen and he said, I'm going to get RSI if I keep <laughs> going with this. <laughs> and, and we got to the end of it and he said, Ian, I, I have never heard a story like it. And he said, when he saw the video evidence that I had at that stage, he said, oh, he said, this is just wrong. He said, there's no procedural fairness. He said, there's injustice all the way through this and there's clearly crimes committed. Misuse of power in public power office. office. All sorts of things. So anyway, he stepped through. He said, yes, I'll help. And I said, look, Rod, you know what? Um, they've taken everything off me. I'm on a strict budget of what I do here. So what's this going to cost? He said, Ian, um, nothing. All right. He said, I'm going to help you. Because this can't happen again. He was flabbergasted by it all right. He was, mm -hmm. he was blown away. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, occasionally I've put my hand up to help people and I've taken things. There have been smaller issues. He said, this is big. And he said, I promise you, this is going to grow. He knew then. He said, when we start digging, we're gonna, there's going to be more to this. And they've uncovered a bunch more stuff oh, along the way. Absolutely. And then he introduced me to Detective Sergeant Paul Brady, used to retired. work with, retired, yeah. which used to work with Rod. Now, um, while Rod has done a huge amount of work, um, Paul Brady literally put his life on hold for 12 months. He has done longer, at least- Longer, longer. He, he came. He came. He came to us in approximately, I'd say, September of 2019. And from September 2019 through till now, I would say that only of this year, he's probably taken some time off to do some things for himself. Other than that- It's been full time and, and seven days a week in a lot of cases. He is what you just described. No bull the quintessential noble old old detective, and he just says, "You question everything, you believe nothing, you rely on the facts. Rely on the facts. You line the facts up." He said, "It's okay to draw a conclusion looking at facts, but here's how you do it, mate. The stuff I have learned that I never expected to learn, uh, that I've learned now. Very few conversations we have with anyone that aren't recorded now. 
Uh, you see, I always thought, oh, you're not allowed to record. That's, you know, you're not allowed to record. Well, it turns out you can record a conversation as long as you're a party to that conversation. Yeah, ask for consent, right? Yep. No, so we've got no, no, everything no, no, recorded. No, no, no. If you are a party- I don't have to tell you. Okay. You, yeah. As long as you're a party, and that's here in Victoria, if you're a party to a conversation, you can covertly record that as long as you are p- a part gotcha, of that yeah. conversation. I can't tap your phone for you for talking else, to your wife. Else. Yeah, that's right. We're recording this, by the way, just so you guys, yeah. are, <laughs> so you guys are aware. <laughs> oh, I can. Yeah. We're a party to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a great, great story within a bad story is are they, those yeah. two well, blokes. 55 years plus mm-hmm. experience between the two of them. I mean- you see one or two things in the criminal arena in 55 years and to have both of them on separate occasions say to both dad and I, this is the worst case of corruption they've ever seen and it just it boggles the mind. Wrapping up on Community Chef, so <laughs> they, uh, they've gone under. You know, well, they're, Yeah, they've been bought out they're, they're, for a do- dollar a share. Yeah, so <laughs> I did some research. The website's vanished off the face of the earth. They still have a YouTube video up, which is cringeworthy to watch in itself. $7 million in debt. Council sources have confirmed the state government has offered to pay a peppercorn price for the social enterprise. You know, they basically have paid, what was it? Uh, is it a dollar? They've given a yep. dollar to Dollars. each of the, they said there was about a dozen councils. You, you guys said about 21, but well, at one point, left. at one point, okay, so they'd left. So they've paid a dozen councils a dollar and they've taken over the liabilities and the debt. So to the, t- the taxpayers of Victoria, um, you've basically ended an amazing small business. And taking a huge loss by doing it. Um, that's how I see it, cut and dry, you know, point blank. And they've got now they've gone under. They're completely gone. The CEO's now moves on to another government agency, I believe, mm. fittingly. And I mean, not only with there smoke, there's fire. This is this is this is a, you know, this is an avalanche. This is, in my opinion, I want the reason why people ask Andrew Bogart basketballer why are you interviewing these two blokes. What does it matter? If this only gets a thousand listeners, I think it helps. Um, I want people that. You know, I know Sam Newman, his podcast, some other outlets that you've done, they have different listeners to I do. If, if this can get seen by people and they can support it, I think it's a, that's the reason why I'm doing it. To give people an idea, these two fellas have given this whole interview without one note. That to me shows <laughs> a whole lot more. I can guarantee you if I had a, a government agent or a council officer here, there'd be a binder and there'd be notes thicker than an encyclopedia. There's not one note they have looked to, to recite any of these dates. Um, it's all off the top of their head. The truth lies in that most times. 99% of the time, the truth lies into someone reciting something without notes. Um, now you need some reminders. That's why there's two of you here. I totally get that, but not one note. The other one is haven't been sued. That, that's a huge point. You've, you've made some pretty directed, pointed accusations of people. You haven't, you haven't been you know, cited for defamation. You haven't received any lawyer letters. That, to me, is telling within itself. Those two things, this is a cut and dry case, in my opinion. I hope, I think the community hopes, take, take them for everything they've got. Where to now? Where are you at? What do you want? What settles this? How do you move on? Well, what will settle this is the uh, department and Danny Nong. So we're currently we're suing the Department of Health and Human Services and- um, And the city of Danny And the city of Danny Nong. Yeah. Um, what they they have to now come to the negotiating table. We'll um, we're currently in the process with uh, one of the big four uh, accounting firms putting together the valuation of the business, so they've got it clear in front of them. So it's not just me saying it or Ben saying it. If this is um, forensic accountants saying, "Yep, that's what they had. This is the documentation that backs up what they're talking about," etc. So there's that. It really, someone has to come to the table and they have to put their hand up. At the moment, they're just sticking their head in the sand. 
So and you know, just really, radio silence at the moment, hearing nothing. Searing nothing. Yep. You don't hear from anyone. No one says a word. And like you said, you know what? Um, and when they do, when they have previously said something, they just come out with motherhood statements or Dorothy Dix's things like, you know, well, we're not going to apologize for putting public safety first. What does that mean? There was no problem. What do you mean you put public safety first? I mean, it, it, that actually I find offensive and angry and, and it makes me angry. But like I said, you know, we met these police officers, they've helped. We've had documents turn up. We've had documents dropped in the letterbox from people who suddenly realize, and there's stuff that I've got that we wouldn't have had, but people have got to know. People like yourself doing what you're doing, people like Sam Newman, getting the story out. Like you say, it may only be a thousand people. It may be more. But this isn't, this is also not just about us anymore. Okay. What has happened to us could easily happen to any other business that they decide to attack. Yeah, and it's that not just can't food. happen. You know, it can happen in um, town planning for you know building developments. It can happen in food. I know the town planning one very well. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it, it is not con- what what we are dealing with in in the food industry and ourselves is for our matter. But it, it, it has a backbone structure of corruption at the core of this and the heart of the system. And that's the problem is that what they're abusing can be manipulated across so many industries. Here, you talked before about the cost of barristers and they are expensive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my this this area of law is known as administrative no, law. No, it's not, not administrative law. She corrected me on that, but it's okay. Don't worry. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> but we our, our barrister has a PhD in law. So, she's not just- a barrister. Mm-hmm. She has a PhD in law. Doctor. Doctor. So it's Dr. Michelle Sharp. Now, she is so um, incensed about the way these people are doing this, the complete disregard for the law. And she said, Ian, I'm bringing up children. Those children have to grow up knowing that the law is there. Okay, it might be expensive. Yeah, we all get that. But they need to know that it will be practiced properly. And appropriately, not abused. Yeah. Yeah. So, she's actually done a heap of pro bono work on this now because, yes, she has to earn an income, but by the same token, she is like me, like these police officers, like the others. You've got very senior and very professional people saying, this has to stop now because who knows, tomorrow it might be you, Andrew, or one of your listeners. No no doubt. And that's that's what's so frustrating about this. Not only that, these- these people, these very people. Now, this isn't some uh, Labor versus Liberal rant. I've got my gripes on both sides, much to my people's. To people think that I'm anti-Labor. I am anti-Labor. I'm also anti-Liberal, almost the same way, because I think they're you know they're, they're much of a muchness. I, I'm, I'm of the belief that at the end of an election, they all sit in the same room and have drinks. That's a story for another day. But it's very concerning that these same people that are involved in in, in your case. They're the head of the coronavirus task force right now. They are the people that we saw on TV every single day destroying countless amounts of Victorian businesses. Now, as you said, as you just mentioned, it's not just in food and hospitality. It could be anyone's business. Mm. But now you've got the coronavirus. Yep. You've got that exemption. I think, I think you've got, you know, you can use coronavirus to shut a mechanic down here. Correct. If Correct. you've got a rival government agency that's running a mechanical yep. workshop, hypothetically. What is different right now? in a state that is is meant to have the gold standard in hotel quarantine what is the difference to 2018 and 20 you know 2019 before coronavirus there is no state of emergency in my eyes yet we keep extending it for what for what emergency we we are meant to have the gold standard now if anyone enters you must have a permit you must go to if you're from a, an affected area you should go to quarantine 
why can we not get those basic principles in place? It just seems like it's an absolute, as I'll say, a shit show running it. And you know what? The person who signed our closure notice, he's at the top of that shit show. Mr. Dr. Brett Sutton, correct? That's yep. him. Yeah. And and my, my point, you know, I've they've handled it poorly. I think there's a little bit of, you can okay, you can say, okay, no one knew how to handle a pandemic who expected it. But I think it's just been landmine after landmine, especially in Victoria. There's no doubt about that. But my concern, that's a, that's a whole, we can podcast that for five hours. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about more that. More than five hours. <laughs> my concern is that they are directly involved in iCook and have been for the last three, four, five years, right? Mm. These same people are now, you know, fraudulently shut your business down, right? They've they're, they're got our best interests in mind for a pandemic. Yes, in quotation marks. Yeah. This is my concern. And people are so blinded to... I'm a labor through and through, so whatever they say goes. Read through the lines, people. Read through read through this story. You know, if you're a labor, ride or die, no matter what, read through this story and tell me that this was this was okay politically because you're a labor supporter. And they're the people that frustrate me. And well, the same with the liberal side. If you're a liberal and your 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 side messes up, you need to call them out. And that's where we're in such a problem in in society, especially Western society. The left, right, the liberal versus labor. Oh, no, my team did wrong, but yeah, the other team did this. No, there's people. There's real people affected by this shit. If you want to take that, and let's look at that exact point that you make. When you have someone who's pro-labor and says, oh, you know, screw the, you know, multi-million business man CEO who's making lots of money. Then you have the liberal who sits there and says, oh, you know, it, it, labor costs me so much in, you know, workforce. Blah, blah. That's the two sides. That's not the issue here. We are concerned about our family and our business. We are concerned about our staff and our families that are associated with our staff. Which there's the labour, there's liberal. the liberal. It is all of it. 41 with- jobs, gone. Mm-hmm. How does labour, who stand for the working class, accept 41 job losses? How does Anthony and, Albanese yeah. and Daniel Andrews stand their hand on heart and say, we're here for the labour voter? Well, the labour voter down in, in Dandenong South, well, they just lost 41 votes because I can tell you now, they didn't enjoy losing their job overnight. They didn't enjoy any of the last two years where they might, some of them I know still haven't got a job. Yeah. You know what? You're absolutely right. There's two sides to everything. And you know what? I come from a family split down the middle. My father was probably more conservative than he was. Um, um, so he was on the right rather than the left. His father was an electrician, uh, Grandpa Bob, and uh, dad's older sister. I, can, I remember the family debates. My aunt is an abs- is a member of the Labor Party and would fight to her death for the Labor Party. And my dad would argue with her about the sort of things you're talking about because he was more moderate, but he was still a conservative. And the family had both sides. And I've grown up with all of that. I've grown up listening to all of that. I'm apolitical. Do you know, as far as I'm concerned, okay, you form a government. But there are good ideas that come from... Um, conservatives and from Labor. Take the good ideas, put it all forward and do it for the people. And call your own side out when there's an yeah, issue. That, that's we're, right. we're, it's become religion, especially yeah, it's, in Melbourne exactly throughout right. this pandemic. Um, look, my family is very similar. My father was uh, immigrant family, yep. caught a wog his whole life, was pushed towards Labor because of the, the kind of victim, you're a victim, come to Labor, until he started his running his own business. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, hang on a second. <laughs> I'm running my own business. I don't think I'm getting a fair shake. And then he went probably more towards the right, but he's now probably apolitical, more towards the right. But I mean, regardless of that, this is this is just basic 
human dignity of seeing like Correct. I don't care what government's involved because I've I've heard horror corruption is corruption. Yeah, and and to say I'm not here sit, sit, sitting here saying no liberals perfect. They're not they're corrupt. Labor's corrupt. We need to weed out those corrupt those corrupt politicians. The final thing I'll say is in the Labor government, probably even in the Liberal, but Labor go- they're in government right now in Victoria. How many of those politicians do you think have ran their own business? Oh, I, I don't know what the figures are, but I'm guessing but not a lot. Very low. You know what the number yeah. one degree is? Arts. Okay. So how can they relate to the, the working class? The working class don't do art degrees. Mm. The working class don't. They've done a great yeah. job of spinning all that, and that's what frustrates me about that side is like, you need to run your own business to realize how hard it is. Yeah, you, you can be on one side of politics and raise minimum wage, because you have to fight for your worker. But what does that do? That business might go under. You know, the penalty rates, for instance, there should be, you know, an option that if people want to come in for the for the regular wage uh, per hour, they're saying, look, I want to work regardless. They should have that option. It shouldn't be demanded. There's people that want to work on days, but now businesses, what do they, what do, they do? They don't open on, mm. on penalty rate days on, no. on public holidays because you can't afford to. Can't afford to. You're exactly. running at a loss. So these things, you know, this is, this is just a small micro cause of, of everything we're seeing today and and your story. I mean, I appreciate both of you, Ian, Ben, thank you for coming on. Your story is fantastic. Um, I urge everyone out there to, to give it a read. Um, there's not a lot out there. One thing I, I would urge any media and any people, I would love to see an update weekly. I don't know if you guys can do it. Um, well, if you you can follow me on Twitter, I'm I'm not. I've never been the biggest uh, tweeter, but uh, I certainly have been. Um, what's your handle for everyone out there? At uh, Ben Ten Cook. At Ben Ten Cook. Once again, thank you very much. And no if worries. we can support you anyway, let us know. We appreciate uh, really all the all, all the um, support from any media outlet, and then uh, of recent the uh, the podcasts of of yourself um, and you know Sam Newman. Uh, Andrew Rule, it has been um, a huge level of support and certainly uh, the buy-in from um, the community, as I said on Twitter, I've never really been big on Twitter, it's just I decided to do a few things and the people who have followed and said that they have the support um, of of us and, and yourself and even getting us to here today is Twitter what brought us together. So, um, I can only thank you from the bottom of my heart, my bottom of my father's heart and our family and, and our staff to, to continue getting the message out there and and being a voice larger than ourselves. Yeah, well, keep keep the updates coming. If we can, get, if you can get something out weekly, I'll help retweet it. I think everyone out there will. If we can get an update and just to hold, you know, the police, council officers, the politicians, hold them to account because they want this to just they want this to just go quiet and disappear, and then you guys maybe get a quiet settlement down the line. Keep banging those tins. Make sure they're held accountable. Heads should roll. Heads need to roll for this. Well, I mean, we, you, you know, to to finish off on the last sort of point, you look at uh, the, the coronavirus and the, the hotel inquiry. Uh, the former minister was Jenny McCarkos. She was involved with the Department of Health. She's she's she answered questions in Parliament. She's now gone because of hotel inquiry, uh, hotel quarantine. She was part to do with Iquig Foods. Yeah. Uh, Kim Peake, she was the former secretary of DHHS. She's now gone She because of the hotel inquiry. But also, I Cook Foods, she she signed off on, on the millions of dollars. We have a letter from her to Community Chef. It's There's lots and lots and lots of tentacles coming off this and we won't stop. Awesome. Thank you very much. No worries.